Well, you sick bastards asked for it, so here it is. Jack the Ripper, part two. And don't worry, we understand we were a little off the rails last week, but don't worry, we're going to be way more unhinged this week. As we talk this week, we're going to go over a multitude of victims, so buckle up. Also, if you thought we were done talking about British letters, <laughs> idiots. Let's get back into the Brits this week. I'm Wes. And I'm Jake. And this is the Half Talentless Podcast. So, just a brief disclaimer. There's so much to go over this episode. I literally could not get the notes written in time. It's Saturday night. We're, we try to get them out 3 o'clock on Sundays. It's Saturday night at 3 a.m. Well, no, it's it's 3 o'clock on Sunday, just 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. This it's, is our normal recording hour, but instead of a pamphlet of papers that we're used to, that we enjoy... I'm looking at like 16 tabs up on Google Chrome. Yeah, which and I, is startling. I have them in order. So, Wes, I will warn you for this one right here, yep. Alice McKenzie. Yep. There's a mortuary photo in that. So oh. I'm going to tell you to look away and I'm going to scroll past it. You're a very nice person. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Because let me tell you, I saw one of those. And oh, still... yeah. I've, I've been watching, I've, well, watching, I've been listening to the other podcasts that we listen to. And because I follow them on Patreon, I can see the videos they post. They just did one on uh, Dean Coral, who is a horrible, horrible person. But the video, the picture they posted for this last one, this part three, was uh, was a dead body. I'm like, oh my god, guys! And you don't see much. I'm like, come on, right. guys. Still, only to find out it's Dean Coral's body. So actually, I was like, woohoo! I'm glad yeah. I saw that fucker. God, and if you think I'm being like harsh with That's that, a go ahead okay. and look up who Dean Coral is. Read don't, about don't him. Do that. No, no, no. If you think I'm being crass, read about Dean Coral and then tell me you disagree with me. Anyway, that aside, um, we're not gonna have too much banter. Like we, yeah, we, we had one or two we things have to so say. So much to get through. Because there's a like this is gonna be a longer episode than usual probably. So you know, like uh, seven victims to get through. Yeah, buckle and up. I'm, this shit is crazy. I'm gonna be actively filtering what I'm reading as I go because I, I didn't have to, usually I. I go through the website, I find what's relevant, I put it in a Word document, but we're at 19 pages, and I'm not even close to done with what we needed to cover this episode. Yep. So we're just going to use we're just gonna use the website itself. We're going I'm try straight to... into the meat, so if, uh, if, you're, if you're not prepared for that, get prepared. It's happening. We're here. We're not going to cover any meat, but um, I, I should also warn you, there's going to be some clicking sounds, and there's going to be... We're trying our... Trying our we're legitimately trying to our to best to, to keep that to a minimum, um... This episode, it's just gonna kind of suck every once in a while. We'll just we we've listened to it and we're trying to keep it as quiet as possible. Jake, you know what you do? Put your hand over it and cut that. That way, the sound can't, it can't get past. Just tell the sound no. Just, just tell no. No. There. We fixed your problem. Say thank you. I could I could hear that clear as day. By the way, yeah. <laughs> Even through the headphones. <laughs> oh Christ. Also, um, before we start. We now officially have the domain 
youtube.com backslash half talentless gaming. Um, I thought we said half talentless archives. Well, no, that's the gaming one. Archives will be a a, set, a totally different thing entirely because I wasn't sure if that was going to be all auditory or video. I know what that was going to be. So I designated our gaming section. I see. So you just you just did not consult me at all. At all. <laughs> when you put me in charge, consulting does not happen, Jake. Oh boy. Do you remember Black Eyed Kids? It was I do remember. Yeah, it was Reddit.com. <laughs> After you, I went back and you clowned on me for going on Reddit in the Goatman episode. God, I, okay. just, I don't like There's you. There's a difference between Goatman Reddit and Black Eyed Kids Reddit. There absolutely is not. I've read Goatman Reddit. Are you sure? Because Black Eyed Kids Reddit, you saw where that took us. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Um, oh, we just wanted to, to put it out there. We don't have any videos right now. Uh, probably won't for a few days, but we have it started. We're going to be testing stuff out. Please give us feedback if, if you care. If you don't care... <clears throat> It's not for you. That's fine. Yeah. Just want to put it out this week. Our foot is in the door. And hopefully, I say hopefully, by next week, we'll have something to give to you on YouTube.com slash Half Talentless Gaming. Yes. Yeah, we have absolutely no idea what that's going to entail just yet. We're, we're <laughs> yeah. working on it. We don't we're... know any of the technical details. We are so drastically underprepared. Yeah, but, hey, we were with the podcast and look how great we're doing. Yeah, we're kind of making it up as we go along. I haven't actually checked the downloads recently. But Neither should, have I. Yeah, we should we should check that. How are we doing? At some, at some point. Let's pull it up on yeah, the phone. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Jake. Should I get us started? I guess give us a brief introduction of what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so uh, when last we left off, uh, we had just covered Annie Chapman's murder, the mishandling of her body by the mortuary. We had covered how the police had briefly brought in uh, a man by the name of John Pizer because they believed he was Leather Apron. And they brought him in, they questioned him, and ultimately released him because they didn't have any evidence. He had rock-solid alibis. So um, this brings us to about se September 10th, 1888. This is two days after Annie Chapman's body was found, and a group of businessmen led by one George Lusk founded the Mile End Vigilance Committee, with Lusk as the ele elected president. So the goal of this committee was to aid the police by, quote, supplementing the police numbers in the area, that's what the website says, um, as well as raise money for a reward for any information that may help the police catch the Ripper. Um, there isn't much to say about this other than the fact that this made Lusk into a celebrity in the area, which you will we will be referring back to later. Um, meanwhile, during Annie Chapman's inquest, Dr. George Baxter Phillips voiced his opinion that the Ripper was a medical man due to the fact that he'd seemingly operated on Annie Chapman, and the skill and speed with which he did it suggested that he had some knowledge of anatomy. The coroner, a man by the name of Wynne Baxter, had a different theory which basically suggested the killer may have murdered her simply to sell one of her organs to an American doctor he refused to name. The entire medical profession then proceeded to disprove everything he said about the supposed American doctor asking for organs. Okay, so that's like, uh, that's uh, he yeah, came out of nowhere and was like, "I know a guy who's offering twenty bucks for yeah, a another organ. publicity bullshit." Yeah, we see a lot of these with high-profile cases. Yeah, and <clears throat> and newspapers ran wild with it, and eventually, of course. Yeah. Uh, so the case went quiet for a while, until on September 27th, 1888, the Central News Agency in the City of London received a letter. The letter read as follows. Okay. Wes, do you want to read this? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. is that where it starts? Yeah. <clears throat> Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. 
That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit, shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My, nice, my knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind, don't mind me giving the trade name. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> ha. I feel sick after reading yeah, that. Yeah, Jesus so, Christ, what a bastard. So the majority opinion of the staff of the agency believed it to be nothing of consequence, and it was only after two days that they sent it to the police. The police were very skeptical of this letter being anything more than a hoax, so they did not release it. This skepticism was challenged on September 30th, when the bodies of two victims would be found within an hour of each other. <clears throat> okay, so before we do that, I know I'm, I'm not trying to sidetrack anymore. No, no, no. This is just real quick before we actually really get into these victims. So, that letter arrives. Is anything in that letter unknown to the public? No. Like, at that time? No, so... And pretty much everything in that letter. It's pretty good to not have specific details. Like, yeah. it could easily be a hoax. Again, it could also so, be... Re I, you don't know, but... Um, I mean, we'll get into it, but um, the reason I, I brought up this letter now as opposed to uh, later, because it doesn't get released to the public until, until later after on. these two murders. But the reason they release it to the public is because he says something... Um, where does he say it? Yeah, the next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? So, the reason I bring that up is because... Okay, I see where this is going. ears do get mutilated okay. in these next... All right. uh, with these okay, next two then I'm, I'm just stopping you. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so, the majority of opinion of the staff of the agency believed it to be nothing of consequence. You read this. Right, right, I did read this. So, Sorry. on so. to Elizabeth Stride. Yes, thank you. So... Elizabeth Stride, known to friends as Long Liz, lived a life familiar to many of the time as a formerly married woman who struggled with alcoholism and the breakdown of her marriage, which led to her living in a lodging house. On the day of September 29, 1888, she spent the afternoon cleaning said lodging house, located at 32 Flower and Dean Street. She was paid sixpence for the job, and it is said that she went to a bar around 6.30, returning around 7 p.m. to the lodging house. Fellow lodging house resident Charles Preston would later say that she was dressed, quote, ready to go out. And after chatting with a friend by the name of Catherine Lane, she left the lodging house around 7.30. It rained quite heavily that night, and at around 11 p.m., two men by the names of Jay Best and John Gardner saw a couple sheltering in the doorway of a building known as the Bricklayer's Arms on Settle Street. With this woman was a man who was five foot five inches and had a black mustache, sandy eyelashes, and he was wearing a black morning suit and a billycock hat. Best would later say, quote, They did not appear willing to go out. He was hugging and kissing her, and as he seemed a respectably dressed man, we were rather astonished as at the way he was going on with the woman. Um, so the two men felt the need to, I believe the technical term is fuck with the couple, 
Um, as you do. And they said to the woman, Watch out, that leather apron getting around you. That's leather apron getting around you. Oh, yes. they said that's, wow, Jesus. Yeah, they literally said, they basically told her, like, the guy you're with is probably the Ripper. Oh my God. I mean, the Ripper wasn't a public name at this point because yeah, the letter yeah, hadn't yeah, been Yeah, it was Leather Apron then. Yeah. Jesus. Um, Fucking Brits. At, at which point the couple, quote, went off like a shot. And they hurried through the rain toward Commercial Road. Sorry, I don't know why I waited for you to read that one. That no, you're fine. I wasn't paying attention. I was drinking my yeah. Coke. So, um, around 11.45 p.m., a laborer by the name of William Marshall was outside his residence at 64 Burner Street when he saw a couple outside of 63 Burner Street. They both seemed sober and they began to kiss. Marshall also heard the man say to the woman, You would say anything but your prayers. After which point the couple left and moved toward Dutfield's yard. He described the man as middle-aged and stout and said that the man had the appearance of a clerk. He was about five foot six inches, clean-shaven, and respectably dressed. He wore a small black cutaway coat, dark trousers, and a round cap with a, quote, small sailor-like peak. So around 12.30 a.m., Police Constable William Smith was walking along Burner Street when he noticed a couple standing on the opposite side of the street, where Elizabeth Stride's body would later be found. The man was about 28 years old with a dark complexion and a small dark mustache. He was about 5 foot 7 inches, had a dark overcoat, a dark deer stalker hat, and arc clothing. I have no idea what that means. It's That's British what the website terms. says. Can't move on. All right. He later identified the woman as Elizabeth Stride and said that she had a flower pinned to her jacket. However, the couple did not rouse his suspicions, so he moved on. At around 12.35 a.m., a man by the name of Morris Eagle was walking through Dutfield's yard. He would later say that he spotted nothing on the ground near the gate and said that he would have noticed if there was a man and a woman in the yard at the time. It was, however, pitch black in the yard, and he was not able to say for certain whether Elizabeth Stride's body was there at the time. So... None of these people knew her as Elizabeth Stride. They just later identified her as Elizabeth So, yeah, Stride. it was, uh, you know, an unknown couple. And that, uh, it's safe to say that's the same couple. By, yeah, it seems it's, like the same it's, likely, it's likely that all of these people saw the Ripper. <laughs> What's interesting is how their descriptions of the Ripper differ ever so slightly. Like, the height seems to be variable, but somewhere around five foot six. Yeah, that's off by, what, two inches? Yeah, it's, in, not, like, too, it's not too far away. And remember, these... This is, this is like just someone you're passing on the street. You're not really paying a whole lot of yeah. attention. What's so, really dark is those, those two guys who made the joke about mm -hmm. that being Leather Apron, they were probably right. Yeah. So I had never known where that famous, I guess, imagery of the Ripper with the hat and that overcoat. Mm -hmm. I didn't know where that came from. That uh, The idea that he was literally seen with a woman, this changes the game entirely. Yeah. So, because we had talked about... With the first victim, um, Marianne Nichols, that yeah, he was m almost certainly in that alley. But this is three. Well, Wes, what I'm about to talk about next is arguably is, is the only time. Well, okay, you know what? I'm about to you talk about the only person who may have witnessed the early stages of a murder. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, you you so just left a clip. The thing. final person to see Elizabeth Stride alive was a Hungarian Jew by the name of Israel Schwartz. Schwartz turned onto Burner Street around 12.45 a.m. and noticed there was a man walking ahead of him. He said the man stopped to talk to a woman in the gateway to Dutfield's yard, and he would later insist that the woman was Elizabeth Stride. Israel does not speak much English, and therefore all of his statements would be made through an interpreter. His statements that he makes during the investigation do differ slightly from the ones he would later make to journalists, but the police took him very seriously as a witness. 
Schwartz described the man he saw as five foot five inches, around 30 years old, and having dark hair, a fair complexion, and a small brown mustache. He said he had a full face, broad shoulders, and appeared slightly intoxicated. Schwartz said that he watched the man try to pull her into the street before he instead spun her around and pushed her onto the footway of the gate. She began to scream. He said it was about three times and not very loudly. Schwartz believed he was witnessing a domestic attack and as such crossed the road so as not to be involved because that was apparently That's what you did British at the time. That's the British thing to do. Yeah. Like, Jesus. Jesus. I mean, look. Let's not sidetrack. Let's yeah. keep going. I just, I don't care if he has a full face and shoulders. Keep going. Take that keep guy going. On. All right. He says that as he did so, he saw a second man standing on the opposite side of the road lighting a pipe. As Schwartz passed the second man, the first man said something that Schwartz guessed to be Lipsky, at which point the second man began to follow him. Schwartz panicked and ran, and had apparently lost his pursuer by the time he had reached a nearby railway arch. Schwartz described the second man as around 35, about 5 foot 11 inches, and that he had a fresh complexion, light brown hair, a brown mustache, and he wore a dark overcoat with an old black hard felt hat. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. So... This guy, Schwartz, he... Oh, go back up. He So he was walking. Uh, he rounds the corner. He sees a gentleman. Now, he described the guy he saw first, the one with the woman. With, with the, the woman. woman, yeah. Basically, as we heard, the Ripper yeah. being described. Yeah. But then there's a second guy? Yeah. The same? The, the second guy isn't described exactly the same. He's significantly taller. He seems a little bit older. Um, he's, he's wearing similar clothing. Hmm. But, in fairness, the, the clothing that the Ripper might have been wearing was probably not uncommon at the time. It's not uncommon, I know, but, like, the first man said something, Schwartz guessed be Lipsky, which is yeah. probably, like, a name. Probably, yeah. And then that guy followed him seemingly so as a Schwartz, pursuer? Schwartz said it seemed as if the man began to follow him. So, it, it's possible It's that possible he wasn't. Right. So, what, because Schwartz doesn't speak any English, we have no idea if maybe he he heard something like, help me, like maybe the guy said, help me, and, and, and the other guy was like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just gonna... Well, it's possible he said something completely different, yeah. and, and remember, this is through an interpreter as well, so yeah. it's possible that the Ripper didn't even speak to the second man, and the second man was just like, oh, like, just noticed this going on. I was like, yep, you know, same idea as Schwartz. Yeah, maybe I'm they were both. the fuck out of yeah. here. I, I, I find it hard to believe that this second man is somehow involved with the first, unless I see something else to back that up, well, I guess. Well, the, the police, again, took Schwartz very seriously, and so yeah. the, the presence of the second man was something they, they actively pursued as a lead. Um, however, for whatever reason, the police eliminated the second man as a suspect. In fact, in a report dated October 19th, 1888, Chief Inspector Swanson wrote, quote, The police apparently do not suspect the second man. So this suggests that the police actually traced the second man and eliminated him as a suspect. Yeah, I, I when I was reading, when I was hearing you read and reading Schwartz describe it, it just seems like a guy It who, seems like he probably just misinterpreted the Yeah, situation. he was out of his element. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like something a little anxiety-inducing is going on. And since yeah. he's already kind of fleeing the, the scene, you know, oh, well, now I'm a witness and this guy's suddenly following me. I, I think that's... I think this second man is easily eliminated as a suspect. So let's... Yeah. Uh, let's... 
let's get on to it. So, since the body was found at 1 a.m., which is about 15 minutes after this happened, mm -hmm. there's a very good chance that Israel Schwartz is the only person to have ever witnessed the early stages of a Ripper murder, and that the man he saw with Elizabeth Stride was very likely Jack the Ripper himself. We will get back to the topic of the second man later, but first we need to cover the timeline of the night very closely, as there was a lot going on in a very short time. Okay. I don't know why I wrote that. We are not going to get back to the topic of the second man later. Oh, because I yep. was literally just about to ask you, so did... If the second man was there, it's possible he... I was going to say, the, if he saw anything, he would have seen the exact same thing that yeah. so Israel the, saw. The website seems to imply that the police tracked him down and and just eliminated him as a suspect. There's no reason... We, we don't know why. Or at least the website doesn't seem to know why. But, I mean, it doesn't line up with any of the other eyewitness accounts that, of potential Ripper suspects that we have like people it seemed like very unlikely that he wasn't working alone it seems clear he wasn't even involved yeah. so here we okay go. <laughs> so at about 1 a.m a man named louis Demschutz, dime shoots we're gonna call him dime, dime shoots. shoots yeah returned to dutfield's yard with his pony which upon entering the yard stopped suddenly and refused to go any further as he looked around the yard he noticed an object on the ground which he tried to move with his whip it did not move so he got down next to it and struck a match the match went out pretty quickly, but he was able to see that it was the prone body of a woman. Don't ask me why, but he believed it was his wife and proceeded inside where he almost immediately found his wife safe. He then told the other people inside, quote, There's a woman lying in the yard, but I cannot say whether she is drunk or dead. He took a candle and returned to the yard with several other people. He immediately noticed blood by the body and everyone present noticed that her throat had been cut. So everyone present immediately ran off in various directions to find a police constable. Dimeschutz and a companion ran along shouting murder and police until they met a police constable by the name of Edward Spooner. Spooner followed them back to Duckfield's yard and found the body was surrounded by about 15 people already. So I should mention, I kind of didn't put this in the note because I didn't see the relevance, but there was like a, a club of some sort. It was actually like a Jewish socialist club in Duckfield's yard. And that's where like Morris Eagle was heading and that's where um, Dimeschutz was headed. So that they were both in the same place. Like, Morris Eagle and Dimeschutz went to the same place. Okay. Who's Morris Eagle again? He was the one who saw... Um, he was one of the witnesses. He was the witness at, like, 12... Oh, okay. So, yeah. okay. All right. Never mind, never mind, never mind. You can go back. We're, yeah, uh, 1235. Yeah, yeah. He was walking through Duffield's gotcha. yard. He, okay. he was the one who said there was nothing there. yeah. Which I don't necessarily believe. I th I think he was he was wrong, or he might just be trying to cover his ass. I don't think he's trying knows. to. I don't I don't know if I necessarily believe he was trying to cover his ass, but for whatever reason he he lied. He, he didn't notice they were in the yard or whatever. Um, so yes, Spooner followed them back to Dutfield's yard and found the body was surrounded by about fifteen people already. He immediately lifted her chin and found it to be a little warm. He inspected the wound on her throat and noticed that there was a trail of blood leading from her throat to the door of the club that Dimeschutz and crew came from. Two other members of the club went and got a police constable by the name of Henry Lamb, telling him, Come on, there's been another murder. Lamb got the attention of another police constable by the name of Edward Collins, and together they followed the two men back to Duckfield's yard. By the time they got there, the crowd was now up to 20 to 30 people. The constables warned the crowd to stay back from the body, and Lamb, sorry, Lamb then sent Collins to get Dr. Frederick William Blackwell and then sent Morris Eagle to a nearby station for assistance. So this is the end of my notes. So we're going to have to we're going to have to go through this. But Morris Eagle and another club member 
club member, sorry, headed out to uh, out of Burner Street, and they went along Commercial Road. Uh, oh shit! Sorry, this is this is where they meet Lamb. I'm sorry. Yeah. So Where's... we're right down here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, um, Doctor Blackwell arrived in the yard at 1:16 a.m. and pronounced the woman dead. He gave it his uh, he gave as his opinion that she had been dead for between 20 to 30 minutes. Um, he did note that the woman was wearing a check silk scarf, the bow of which was turned to the left and pulled tightly. So at the inquest into her death, he stated that he had formed the opinion that the killer had first taken hold of the black silk scarf and pulled his victim backwards onto the ground. He, however, couldn't be certain whether the woman's throat was cut while she was standing or after she had been pulled backwards. Um, it is said that she would have bled out relatively quickly after her throat had been cut. Um, that is something he said. I'd rather not get into it because it's kind of dark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so right after Dr. Blackwell arrived, uh, Police Constable Lamb immediately gave orders to close the gates into Duffield's yard and told everyone to remain where they were. He searched the club's premises. He examined people's hands, clothing, and everything for blood stains. Having found nothing suspicious, he went around to the cottages at the rear of 42 Burner Street and woke the residents who had apparently remained asleep throughout the excitement of the previous 30 or so minutes. The residents appeared very frightened, and when they asked Lamb what had happened, he told them, quote, nothing much, as he didn't want to alarm them further. He then returned to the body to find that Inspector West, Inspector Pinhorn, and Dr. Phillips had arrived at the scene. Meanwhile, Inspector Edmund Reed was alerted by telegram at 1.25 a.m. and headed directly to Burner Street from Commercial Street Police Station. When he arrived, Phillips and Blackwell were examining the woman's throat. All of the people in the yard were then interrogated and their names and addresses were taken. Uh, once everyone had given an account of where they had been and you know what they had done, their hands and pockets were inspected and searched, they were allowed to leave. Um, a more thorough search was then made into the cottages and the names of the residents ascertained. Um, there was a brief moment where they thought they might catch the killer in hiding because there was a door to a loft that was found to be locked from the inside. They forced it open, it was empty. So, uh, uh, Reed then inspected the wall near where the body was lying and found no traces of blood on it. And at 4.30 a.m., the body was moved to St. George's Mortuary in Cable Street. And at 5 a.m., uh, Police Constable Albert Collins washed the blood away from the yards. So, it seems that everybody in the club was obviously searched and all that. Mm -hmm. But the blood stain went to the club, correct? It did seem to go that way, yeah. So... I, I didn't see if it clarified if it went like into the club or just direction. I didn't see that either. It's a clear no so it's a possibility it was either in that direction or possible maybe he went through the club, which would have been a ballsy move. But then again, it's Jack the Ripper. Who, yeah, he's, he's who a the fuck knows? Killer. The guy just uh, it, it's kind of like I've talked about this before um, with Dad a while back. This idea that some people, it's almost like they just don't have that fear factor in their brain. Yeah, like they, it's just, just, they, no they don't care. And especially when you've gotten away with, what, two or three now? It's it's just... Yeah, I imagine the ego's, the pride is running pretty high. and he's, The boldness probably, starts probably really like going. He yeah. probably feels invincible. Um, so, while this was happening, at about the exact moment that Elizabeth Stride's body was being discovered in Duffield's yard... <laughs> Another prostitute named Catherine, or Kate E. Dowds, was being released from Bishopsgate Police Station in the city of London. Okay, real quick. Where is that picture, by the way, that you mentioned? It's there. 
Oh, we're so it's way down. Okay, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. cool. Because I'm, I'm like getting all tense. Like, where the, don't where, worry what about am I? Wes, when we get to that, I'll, I'll tell you and I'll scroll past it. Yeah, I was like, man, I, I feel like I'd be okay to look at it, but I don't yeah. want to look at it. Okay, so <clears throat> we're, we're going to briefly go over Catherine E. Dow's uh, last night, and then we'll we'll get into where in the timeline her body is found. Yeah. Um, so at around 8.30 p.m. the previous evening, she had been entertaining a, delight, a delighted A crowd fucking website man. yeah a delighted crowd of onlookers outside number 29 oldgate high street with a spontaneous though drunken imitation of a fire engine that is fucking spectacular that is great god damn she then immediately went to sleep on the pavement uh so police constable robinson of the city police arrived on the scene and asked if any of the onlookers knew who she was or where she lived none of them did mm-hmm. uh he then hauled her to her feet and lent her against the wall where she promptly slid back down onto the pavement the uh, the website points out that this is no doubt to the further amusement of the crowd. Of course. These yeah. people are fucking awful. We've learned yeah. that so far. This lady seems incredible, though. Yeah, she seems awesome. She seems so, fun. Uh, Robinson got a colleague, uh, Police Constable George Simmons, and together they got her down to Bishop's Bishop's Gate Police Station. They, quote, manhandled her around to, to the station. Yeah. Okay, um, Jesus. So they asked her her name, and she replied, nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A fucking hero, I know. So uh, the officers placed her in a cell <laughs> to sober up, and she fucking just napped the dude, time away. Dude, fu- she's like, fuck you guys. Police Constable George Hutt, the city gowler, whatever the fuck that means, G-A-O-L-E-R. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Anyway, he came on duty at 10 p.m. and took over the responsibility of the prisoners in the cell. He checked on her several times over the next few hours and found her just still fast asleep each time he did so. All they did was give her a bed. Yeah, she's just <laughs> napping. Let her chill sober up. So by 12.15 a.m. she had woken and Hutt could hear her singing softly. About 15 minutes later, she called him and asked when she would be allowed to leave. He then said, When you can take care of yourself. Oh, that was awful. You I gotta called do that back. Oh, wait, was that her? Okay. Yeah, this is her. I can do that now. Came her reply. At 12.55, he brought her from her cell and told her she could go. When he asked her her name and address for the release payers, papers, she told him it was Mary Ann Kelly of 6 Fashion Street. Now, Wes... This might not be related at all, but when I read this, I was like, wait, Mary Ann Kelly? Yeah, I was I just this? thinking, I know that. Mary Kelly is another one of the victims. What? I don't know if it's the same it one. It might not even be probably connected. not. It's but probably not just, connected. That's such but that's a, a wild coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. Uh, also, I can't help but think, like, God damn it! If only she had slept through the night. If only yeah. they had said, oh, no, you're fucking drunk. You're staying here the night. Yeah. Damn it. So, anyway. she was discharged. He, you know, he said... Uh, she, he took him. Out, he took her outside the police station, and she asked him what time it was. He responded. Oh wait, I didn't see where it started. Uh, too late for you to get any more drink. I shall get a damned fine hiding when I get home. She. Oh, she sighed. Yeah, she opened the door. So, Hot, of course, is a dick, and he says, "And serve you right." You have no right to get drunk. Oh, <laughs> what a fucking, dick. Fucking woman, you can't get drunk. Uh, Jesus. Jesus. So, she left the station. Uh, Hut asked her to shut the door behind her. She said, uh, <laughs> All right, she chirped. Good night, old cock. <laughs> oh, God, she's Dude. my favorite person. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, she oh. headed off towards Houndstitch. Uh, Hutt later estimated that it would have taken her around eight minutes ordinary walking to reach Meter Square. 
uh, during which time the murderer of Elizabeth Stride was also heading towards the square from the opposite direction. So, previously, the Ripper murders had happened in, like, the Whitechapel East End. Yep. He heads into the city of London. He heads... Oh, I he's mean, in London now. Yeah, like, he's he out heads, of the boroughs like, into London. I think he goes west. I don't yeah, know yeah. the layout of... Uh, it's half a mile to the west of Burner Street. Okay, that's, so that's England. They it's just inside the city of London boundary. So, um... Is meter squares where, where her body Okay, but yeah, now they're in London. Now this shit matters. Yeah. So, uh, a you police constable by the name of... Yeah, I, I'm skipping that because it's it's all just information about where... where oh, well, yeah. Is. Who gives a fuck about that place? Keep going. So, at 1.30 a.m., police constable Watkins of the city police passed this southeast corner of meter square on a beat that brought him through meter square every 12 to 14 minutes. He had his lantern on and fixed to his belt. He was later emphatic that the square had been quite deserted and that no one could have been hiding in the square without him seeing them. He left the square and turned right towards Aldgate. Five minutes later, three Jewish gentlemen, Harry Harris, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Joseph Lewende, left the Imperial Club on Duke Street and as they passed its junction with Church Passage, noticed a man and woman talking quietly together. The woman had her back to them, but they could see that her hand was resting on the man's chest. Levy was immediately convinced that the couple were up to no good and announced brusquely, I don't like going home by myself when I see these sorts of characters about. A bit of a snobby dick. Yeah, of course. So in his, in his hurry to get away, he paid the couple scant attention and was unable to furnish a description of either of them. Although he did say that the man may have been three or so inches taller than the woman. Mm. Yeah, so he just looks at him, goes, I don't like these type of people, probably because they're poor, and then leaves. So Probably. Joseph Lewende, however, noticed a bit more. Although he hadn't seen the woman's face, he was almost certain that her clothing was that worn by Catherine E. Dowes when he was later shown it at the police station. Although the street lighting wasn't particularly good, he caught a brief glimpse of the man's face and was able to provide police with a description. He had the appearance of a sailor and was aged around 30. He was around 5 foot 9 inches tall of medium build. He had a fair complexion and a small fair mustache. He sported a reddish, reddish neckerchief tied in a knot and wore a paper and salt-colored loose-fitting jacket, and had on a gray-peaked cloth cap. However, it should be noted that Lewende obtained only a quick, quick glimpse of the man as he passed by, and since the couple were doing nothing particularly suspicious, he later maintained that he would not be able to recognize or identify the man were he to see him again. Catherine's body was discovered just 15 minutes later in Meter Square, a few steps away from where Lewende saw the couple, and there's a high probability that the man he saw was the murder of Catherine E. Dowd. This makes it highly likely that Lewende saw the face of Jack the Ripper. So Jack the Ripper looks like a sailor? Yes. That's awfully descriptive. I don't even know what that means. Neither do I. I guess no there's like a typical look of a sailor go back then. Go look at six different... Go look at Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> the hell? I, I think what it might mean is it might refer to like facial hair or... Okay, yeah, or I get like, like the mustache. Or, or maybe what? like haircut. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fair enough, fair maybe enough. Maybe they kept certain standards, but okay. anyway. Okay, fair enough. At 1.44 a.m., Police Constable Watkins turned out of Leadenhall Street, strolled along Meter Square, and veered right into Meter Square. Almost immediately, he saw a sight that sent him reeling back in horror. Like this. You yeah. don't need well, to Come on, you don't need way. that. He found the body, all right? Jesus. Catherine E. Dallas was lying on her back in a pool of blood. And th clothes were thrown up over her waist. Which Wes, is like Marianne Nichols. Wes, what? If you don't want to see stuff about mutilation, you won't see any pictures, but there are some descriptions. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm going to try to filter it. I've read through some of this. It's, okay. it's not great. 
So Watkins immediately went racing across the square and burst into Killian Tong's warehouse where he knew a retired policeman, George Morris, was working as a night watchman. For God's sake, mate, cried Watkins. Come to my assistance. Here is another woman cut to pieces. Pausing to get his lamp, the night watchman followed Watkins to the square's southwest corner, took one look at the body, and raced along Meter Street towards Aldgate, blowing furiously on his whistle as he ran. So in... I'm sorry, I just had to mention, that's the first time I've noticed the whistles being mentioned. Yeah. I don't know if that's, like, something that happened just, just the first time they mentioned well, but like, I, So I think it might be because he's a night watchman, so he gets a whistle, whereas police get, like, I don't know. Didn't all. they get whistles, too? I don't know, but they weren't using them. That's, that well, that's just why I, I was curious, because, like, like, that's a significant detail, in my opinion, because it's very different to be yelling for someone than that loud-ass, you know, ear-piecing yeah. whistle that you're trained to listen for. So, uh, in Oldgate, he met Police Constable James Harvey and Police Constable Holland and brought them back to the square. Holland went immediately to fetch Dr. George William Sequira from his abode on nearby Jewry Street. Sequira was on the scene by 1.55 a.m. and later told the inquest that the place where the murder had occurred was probably the darkest part of Meter Square, although there had certainly been enough light for the miscreant to perpetrate the deed. So, uh, he does say death would have been instantaneous due to the cut on her throat, um, and he also said that he was of the opinion that the murderer possessed no great anatomical skill. Uh, in other words, he only had a basic knowledge of anatomy, and when asked by the coroner if he would have expected the murderer to be bespattered with blood, he replied, quote, not necessarily. Uh, so, he didn't really do much more than pronounce life extinct, and literally decided not to touch the body. He preferred instead to await the arrival of the city police divisional surgeon, Dr. Federal Frederick, Jesus, Frederick Gordon Brown. Fuck, that should not have been so hard for me. So, meanwhile, police officers were converging on Meter Square from all over the city. Inspector Edward Collard arrived from Bishopsgate, sorry, Bishopsgate Police Station and ordered an immediate search of the neighborhood, instructing that door-to-door inquiries were to be made of the area around Meter Square. Next on the scene was Superintendent James McWilliam, head of the city police detective department, who arrived with a number of detectives, all of whom he sent to make a thorough search of the Spitalfield streets and lodging houses. As the officers began to fan out through the streets, several men were stopped and questioned, but to no avail. The killer, it appeared, had simply melted away into the night. Yep. So, uh, it does mention here that it's probable that he made his escape via the St. James Place, where there was a Metropolitan Fire Escape Station. Uh, But the fireman on duty didn't see or hear anything, and neither had Police Constable Richard Pierce, who lived at number 3 meter square, where his bedroom window looked across at the murder site. Uh, George Morris, the night watchman, whose whistle had first alerted the police at large to the atrocity, expressed himself totally baffled as to how such a brutal crime should have been committed close by without him hearing a sound. Yeah, I, like, just to cut in real quick, um, I mean, I'm trying not to be gruesome here, but it, it, if you think about how the women were killed, it seems fairly obvious why it would have been such a quiet crime. Yeah. But him, him escaping... I feel like a lot of it is literally him. It's that idea of him melting into the shadows. Like, he literally uses the shadows. Because if you think about Marianne Nichols, he could have been around the corner in the dark. Yeah. And he's in all black. You wouldn't have seen him. Yeah. So it's it's just something that I kept seeing when I was reading through some of this. That, like, it, it's almost like he literally could have walked down the street just in the dark, in the shadows. We will go, we will go uh, a little bit into how he might have escaped. Because... The, the police are still fanning out. Yeah. After the death of of um, I'm sorry, what, 
I, I'm trying a blank on the name. Um, before Catherine Edows. Just go up a little bit. Yeah, I'm going up. Go. Going up. Uh, I know her name. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Stride. Stride. Jesus, I'm so dumb. So Elizabeth Stride, at this time, has already been murdered. The yeah. police are the police actively are, looking. The police are moving west. So, like, we're going to talk about it, but, like, Inspector Edmund Reed was, uh, hold on. Oh, shit, I clicked on the wrong one. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, what what really is weird is that while Catherine Downs was with whoever murdered her in Meter Square, three city detectives, Daniel House, Robert Outram, and Edward Marriott, were already, like, orchestrating plainclothes patrols of the city's eastern fringe. Uh -huh. So, they were working their way west from the east. The murder had apparently managed to slip past them undetected, and then it headed back into the streets of the east end. So... Basically, he started out east, committed yep. a murder. Yep. Cops in the east are searching for him. He slips past them, commits mm -hmm. a murder to the west, mm -hmm. then returns east, slipping past them again. Mm -hmm. um, Which I don't want, like, I just, the reason I mentioned the shadows and shit was solely because I didn't want to glorify the idea of, oh, he's this master escape artist. It's yeah. not hard. Like, yeah. he could have taken a back alley in the middle of the night. Please do not fucking personify this guy as, he's, as if it's, he's some look, great... It's kind of hard, because when you read this, it almost sounds like yeah, that. Yeah, the, the guy who Jesus. wrote this seems to have a hard-on for making the kid God. the record seem like the most skilled murderer in history. He wasn't. Even the goddamn... Uh, the guy who wouldn't even touch the body was like, yeah, this dude has no fucking clue what he's doing. Yeah. Anyway. So, um... House was over by St. Botolph's Church when he learned of the murder at just over 2 a.m. He hurried to Meter Square, and he gave instructions to the constables present to search the neighborhood. Howells then set off to make his own search, heading first for Middlesex Street, from which he turned into Wentworth Street, where he stopped to question two men. Both, though, were able to give him a satisfactory account of their movements, and he allowed them to continue on their way. He then passed through Golston Street at around 2.20 a.m., where he noticed nothing untoward, and then headed back to Meter Square. Here he found that the body had been removed to the Golden Lane Mortuary. All right, so real quick, can you show me when... The first, when did, when did, um, Stride, when was she murdered? So, Stride was murdered any time between 12.45 and, and 1am, in that, yeah. like, 15 minute period. So in that time, you know, all that shit's going on, like, 1.45 is when she's, is when the body's discovered. So we had 45 yeah. minutes to get all the way over to the West End, commit well, the murder. it does say that it, it, at some point on the website, which I definitely skipped, um, it does say at some point that it's about like a 10 to 15 minute walk. Yeah. So, no, I'm saying he had a, a good chunk of time to get over there, mm -hmm. commit the second murder, mm -hmm. and then move back. And it, it's almost like the police are, are scrambling. Are, they're, they're still kind of scrambling from the first time when it seems he's slipping back after the yeah, second. Yeah, so I, I didn't mention this, but um, the first murder, there was none of the usual mutilation. Are you, are you really far off to the right? I couldn't tell with the way your angle is angled. No, I'm, angled. I'm, I'm good. Do you have your left earbud in? I'm good. I just want to make yeah. sure it didn't sound like it was all the way up in the right ear. Yeah. So, um, very basically, Elizabeth Stride's body did not have any of the usual mutilation of a ripper victim. Mm -hmm. It, um, it, it was really just kind of like her throat was cut and I, I believe her ear was slightly mutilated. But what most people believe is that the killer was interrupted by dime shits. Oh. Coming in with his pony. Uh, hence and, why we would have a second murder not yeah. 45 minutes later. Right, yeah. So okay. It, it's believed that... But Catherine Edowes was significantly mutilated. Oh, well, of course. This time he wasn't uh, 
interrupted like that. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so that's next we move on. Uh, yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm just making sure. So here we get on to the only clue the Ripper ever left behind. I'm sorry, real quick. Is that when you say the only clue, like, is this something he left on his own or by accident? Is it a it's, piece of evidence or a clue? It's a piece of evidence. Okay, all right. Yeah, okay. so uh, it's believed that after he murdered Catherine Nidaus, uh he fled east again uh, from Meter Square and headed into the east end of London where he left a clue in a doorway in Golston Street. This is a short walk away from Meter Square. Okay. So um, he had just committed two murders in less than an hour. Mm-hmm. So... He was probably well aware that the police were there. Yeah. Um, but he didn't He didn't go west where it would have been safer or north or south. He went back into the east mm-hmm. where there were still police searching. So this leads a lot of people to believe that's where he might be located. I completely agree. He yeah. either lives or lodges in that area yeah. 100%. Um, so he slipped past a lot of people on, in doing that. And that's what a lot of people aren't sure about. But um, many believe, this is something I, I wasn't really planning on getting into, but a lot of people question how he got past these police officers when he was probably covered in blood. Um, it's believed that he took his overcoat off when he committed the murders and then just put it back Threw on it back and covered all the blood. Yeah. Makes and sense. There, and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the inquests into the deaths of the victims, uh, the coroners were asked how much blood you would expect the record It wouldn't be much. In. Yeah, and that's what they said. They yeah. said it probably would not be much. Um, so we do know that while Catherine was leading her murderer into, into Meter Square, uh, those two detectives were like making their way to Meter Square, like from the Eastern, Eastern fringe. It wouldn't let me hit play. Damn, (laughs) I hate you. I hate you. Just keep going. Okay. Jesus. Wes made me pause. Keep going. Um, anyway, so... He questioned, uh, Hal's questioned those two men, and uh, he he kind of left. He made his way back from, from Golston Street. He passed through Golston Street at 2.20 a.m. But later, uh, he, they, they would find a piece of evidence on Golston Street. So when he returned to the uh, mortuary at Golden Lane, mm-hmm. he was informed that a fragment of Catherine Yudao's apron had apparently been taken away by her killer. That missing part of the apron was found by police constable Alfred Long as he patrolled his beat along Golston Street at 2.55 a.m. that morning. So that's, that's 35 yeah. minutes after he passed through Golston Street, mm-hmm. after uh, <clears throat> Hal's passed through Golden Street, Golston Street. <clears throat> He was walking past the doorway, which led to the staircases of 108 to 119 Wentworth model dwellings. He noticed a portion of, ap- of apron lying on the floor beside the go- doorway. He discovered that it was covered with blood as well as other things, and noticed that other marks suggested that the blade of the knife of a knife had been wiped on it. So, again, Police Constable Long had also walked past the same doorway at 2.20 a.m. at more or less the same time that Daniel Howells had passed through Golston Street, and... Like Hal's, he had seen nothing out of the ordinary. In fact, he was emphatic that he would most certainly have noticed if the piece of apron had been there, and he was, therefore, sure that it hadn't been. It, it seems absolutely plausible. It's in a doorway. Yeah, you don't yeah I feel like you'd notice that. So the apron is the only real clue that Jack the Ripper left behind. Um, and it, it really 
doesn't I, I mean the article goes on about how much it tells us about his intentions and appearance it doesn't really tell us much about that i don't think um it just tells us where where he was mm -hmm. at, at like in between those times yep. what direction he went in um it's a very big piece of the clue as to where as to his literal past his, his location you but... know you now know that but after 220 he had to have gone through there presumably going um, going east. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to skip most of this. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's uh, just whether he would have been covered in blood, but we've really covered that. So, uh, the journey from Meter Square to Golston Street takes a little under 10 minutes at a brisk pace. Howells had walked it in 20 or so minutes as he was on the lookout for suspicious looking characters and had even stopped to question the two men he had encountered en route. There are, however, several possible routes that he could have taken and they all could be done at a rapid pace in around 10 minutes or less. If Long and Howells were correct in their assertion that the portion of Apron hadn't been there at 2.20 a.m., then the murderer had loitered in the area for anywhere between 35 minutes and an hour, during which time the police were fanning out into the area to search for him and were stopping and questioning any men they met. So where was he for this 35 minutes to an hour? I I mean, it... it... For dramatic effect, uh, for those of you listeners, they kind of add like, "Was he here? Was he there? Why?" Yeah. Did... Anyway, the the point is, if he's loitering, he's hiding. Yeah, and I I have to believe his dumb ass is heading back east to get home. Yeah, because he he probably has some blood on him. He has the murder weapon. He's very obviously a murderer. He fits the description. All this stuff. He's going back east after he's already killed somebody there. So now you know. I, I was wrong when I first thought, okay, yeah, he just kind of, you know, slips past him. He had to hide because he almost got himself caught. Well, I will point out, the website does the, like, it does point out something that I think should be considered. It is possible that he made it home and then returned to Golston Street to drop the apron to taunt the police. It's po entirely possible. I personally... I just think it's more plausible that he had to hide because when you look at the timeline, he would have been going straight at those detectives. Because they, in fairness, those officers fanned out quick as shit. This is yeah. a better response than the other two. So, I uh, I, ha I just have to think he found himself facing down, you know, a, a couple patrol officers and had to hide somewhere. It could have been behind a damn tree. You know, yeah. he had to have gone somewhere until. He made, you know, that that quick escape. Yeah. So, uh, Police Constable Long's immediate thought when he discovered the apron was that someone could have been attacked and may at the very moment be lying injured or dead on a staircase or landing inside the dwellings. So, he stood up, basically planning on searching the block, but as he did so, he noticed a scrawled chalk message on the wall directly above the apron. It read... What the hell is that word? Jews. Jews? Yeah. Okay. It's a misspelling of, of Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that... No, that's... Sorry. That was written on the wall? Yeah. Or this, that this is what was written on the wall. Okay, it wasn't the website. Cool. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> Quote, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. So, moments later, another officer arrived at the scene, and Long asked him to guard the building, telling him to keep a careful watch on anybody entering or leaving it, while he, he took... The portion of apron around a commercial street police station and handed it over to an inspector. Pretty soon, officers of the Metropolitan Police were gathering around the doorway and were gazing at the graffiti with graffito. I don't know. Why it's graffiti. 
yeah, with feelings of great trepidation. So we're, it goes into quite a bit of detail about what happened to the graffiti because the Metropolitan Police wanted to erase it. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in the area at the time. They were worried that if it was seen, it would lead to anti-Semitic attacks. Um, the city police did not want that. It should be, they said it should be photographed for evidence beforehand. Oh, completely agreed. Right. Uh, Daniel Howells himself even suggested a compromise whereby the Jews are part, the top line, would just be erased. And then they could just, they could, you know, photograph the rest. Uh, but... I, I need to look this up real quick. I'm, I'm curious as to whether if, uh, and stop me if they uh, explain this, J-U-W-E-S... Obvious misspelling. Now, is that just like some sort that's, of slang that's from just, back I then? Think it's, just, I just, it's just one of the spellings back then. They weren't so crazy about Okay, because I wasn't sure if that was like a an actual yeah. misspell. Because if so, you might not want to erase that part. But, but it, yeah. The Metropolitan Police were of the opinion that if they had just erased the Jews are part, it would still it would still have the same context. Because it was a largely Jewish building. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Sir Charles Warren arrived at the scene between 5 and 5.30 a.m. The doorway stood on Metropolitan Police territory, so his word was final, and he immediately concurred with his officers that leaving the graffiti any longer would lead to far greater crimes against innocent Jews. He ordered the message to be erased without delay and before any photograph of it could be taken. So, this pissed a lot of people off. It pisses me off. God. Major Look. Smith, the acting city police commissioner, considered it a huge blunder and could barely disguise his contempt for Warren's actions. Look, I, I give... I understand why you erase it. Like, Warren, I get it. But, dude, wait. Like, if you're worried about people seeing it, block off the area. Well, yeah, that's what he said. Um, no, in fairness just, to him... We, we literally just said that. Yeah. Like, it, it, it obviously is, is some anti-Semitic bullshit that should be erased. But I think... But you gotta photograph I think most people yeah. can agree that is potential evidence... That's a significant I'm, thing you I'm should look at. I'm 100% against Sir Charles Warren here. I think he fucked up when he erased Agreed. That. However, agree. many of those who saw the graffiti commented that it looked faded as though it had been there for some time. So okay. it's unlikely that the Ripper himself wrote it. However, him leaving the apron under yeah. that? It, it, I think just for the context of the area in which it was found, you should have taken a picture of it. That's all I'm saying. Even if it, even if Ripper didn't write it, I think that's just something you should know was there. Well, it sh it should be pointed out because it, his actions were so controversial. The graffiti was widely reported anyway. Like reporters got a hold of it, and no wild scale wide scale anti-Semitism broke out that time. Well, yeah, but that's so also it, it looked like he was wrong. You've now just you've literally done what you were trying not to do, and you don't have a picture of it. Yeah, so. Okay. They they fucked up real bad there. Okay. I'm I'm actually quite upset that they they did that. Yeah, that's that is ridiculous. So it's at this point that the police made the dear Jack the dear boss Jack the Ripper letter that yep, the one we read. They made it public on October first. Okay. Um. However. Uh, oh. oh sorry. My God. I I scrolled down too. No, far you're fine. But I figured we'd see some of that. Yeah. So. They released it on August 1st because of the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Down because they had to take a closer look at it. Because he did say, I want to get to work right away if I get the chance. And 
um, the threat to clip the lady's ears off and send them to the police officers. Catherine Dazio lobes were mutilated. So the police thought it was it was too close for them to ignore it. I agree. I think that's just something that you like if it wasn't public and that is that's that's pretty significant in my opinion. Can we actually post those pictures on our Twitter? Um These Twitter, these pictures? Yeah, absolutely. That's the letter. I'll, yeah. I'll, so we're going to download those later. Yeah, we're, we're going to post those on our Twitter. Yeah. They, and the ones we'll post that's the first letter the quote dear boss. Dear boss letter. letter. Yeah. There's there's another letter, another major letter that we'll, we'll get about, to that. Yeah. Um so yeah. Yeah, it 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 uh, seemed to be a hoax at first. It seemed to be a hoax, but they they did what I'm going to be honest, I completely disagree with this move. They released it on the 1st of October. I, 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 I think this was a major fuck up. I agree with you. Because even the website says if they hadn't released this letter, it's it's likely we wouldn't be talking about this right now. Because it wouldn't have the grim immortality that it does now, is what yeah, they say. Yeah, agreed. I think uh, I think it's something you look at, but god damn, it's, it's just one of those things that I, I feel like the media should not get a hold of right then. Yeah. Well, in the early mail on Monday, October 1st, a postcard that was written in a similar handwriting to the Dear Boss letter arrived at the Central oh, News shit. Agency. This, too, was scrawled in red ink, but, in addition, there were what appeared to be bloodstains on it. The writer had not put a date on the postcard, but it did bear the postmark London E and was dated the 1st of October, which means it was probably written the same day this was released. I We have no idea, or at least I have no idea, whether this was written before or after the letter was released, but I think it was it was after. Written after? Yeah. I, I agree. I think it was written. I I haven't read it yet, but it seems to imply Jack the Ripper did write this. I kind of think right now that he did. And if he did, it it's probably in response to them posting the letter. Because the letter was sent to a, a news agency. It was sent to a news agency. And we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk yeah, about yeah. that. So, uh, but what I'm saying is he sent it to the news. They didn't post it. And now they finally posted it. I feel like that's a response to them. And we'll get we'll, to we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to what I think about this letter. Okay. But uh, he wrote this another letter. Uh, if the author was not the same writer responsible for the Dear Boss letter, there was little doubt that he was at least familiar with the contents of that letter. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But this is what okay. the postcard read. So the postcard read, I was not cotting dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. So this one is written... We have pictures of that We'll there. post that one as well. Um, it was pretty obvious that whoever had penned the postcard was inferring that it had been written a very short time after the murders had taken place and that the writer was boasting to the police about the two murders he had supposedly just committed. In addition, it included the taunt that he had indeed tried to carry out his threat from the previous communique, Jesus, of clipping a victim's ears off. Yeah. Um, so, this is where we start getting into the negatives of them making the okay. letter public. Before you do that, I just wanted to, to mention... Um, fuck it, we'll get into it after this. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, within days of the Dear Boss letter and postcard being made public, copies of them began appearing in the world like wide press this publicity made it very hard for the police to catch the killer because national pastime saw that people hoaxers really just immediately started sending in letters so the police had no choice but to read and assess each letter 
yeah. and form a judgment on its veracity and, if possible, trace to investigate the writer. So, George Sims, the journalist, writing in his Dagonet column for The Referee on Sunday, October 7th, aptly summed up the effect that the release of the letter and postcard and the arrival in the public consciousness of the name Jack the Ripper had had. <clears throat> this is in quotes. Jack the Ripper is the hero of the hour. A gruesome wag, a grim practical joker, has succeeded in getting an enormous amount of fun out of a postcard which he sent to the Central News. The fun is all his own, and nobody shares in it. But he must be gloating demonically at the present moment at the state of... Sorry, I'm, I lost my point. At the state of perturbation... Jesus Christ, in which he had flung the public mind. Grave journals had re uh, reproduced the sorry jest and had attempted to seriously argue that the awful Whitechapel fiend is the idle and mischievous idiot who sends blood-stained postcards to the news agency. Of course, the whole business is a farce. So George Sims is of the opinion that the right whoever wrote this letter is not Jack the Ripper. Yeah. I full-heartedly agree. Um, of the, the postcard or the letter? Either, the, the first I, I don't think either one of them was written by Jack the Ripper. Huh. I, I think they were written by the same person, and we'll get into it. Well, that that is, in my opinion, kind of clear it was written by the same person. So, yeah. By this time, the police were certain that the correspondence had most certainly not been penned by the same hand that had murdered Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Catherine E. Dowes. But, of course, they had been duty-bound to investigate them, if only to trace the author and eliminate him or her from their inquiries. On the 10th of October, Sir Charles Warren, this fucking asshole, informed the Home Office that, quote, At present, I think the whole thing a hoax, but of course we are bound to try and ascertain the writer in any case. So, in 1910, in his memoirs, Robert Anderson, who at the time of the murders was the assistant, pardon me, police commissioner, and head of the detective department, was even more emphatic that the letter had been a hoax. He even stated that the police knew the prankster's identity. Quote, I will only add here that the, quote, Jack the Ripper letter, which is preserved in the police museum at New Scotland Yard, is the creation of an enterprising London journalist. Yeah, See, that, so that was probably my, a journalist. Immediately would have been my guess. And w George Sims points out why it was probably a journalist. Because, um, well, here, I'll let you read. All right. The fact that the self-postcard proclaimed assassin sent his imitation blood besmeared communication to the central news people opens up a wide field for theory. How many among you, my dear readers, would have hit upon the idea of the central news as a, as a receptacle for your confidence? You might have sent your joke to the Telegraph, the Times, any morning or evening paper, but I will lay long odds that it would never have occurred to communicate with a press agency. Curious, is it not? that this maniac makes his communication to an agency which serves the entire press. It is an idea which might occur to the pressman, perhaps, and even then it would probably only occur to someone connected with the editorial department of a newspaper, someone who knew what the central news was and the place it filled in the business of news supply. This proceeding on Jack's part betrays an any sorry an betrays inner an inner knowledge of the newspaper world which is certainly surprising everything therefore points to the fact that the joke that the jokeist is professionally connected with the press and if he is telling the truth and not fooling us then we are brought face to face with the fact that the whitechapel murders have been committed by a practical journalist perhaps by a real live editor 
which is absurd. And at that, and and at that, I think I will leave it. So basically, he's like, this was probably a journalist, and the only way these letters could be true is if a journalist killed these women. Yeah. And he literally fucking thinks that's hysterical. Yeah, he thinks that's a fucking yeah. joke. And I agree with him. Um, and that is a great point. Like, when we talked about the letter for the first time, it just... I think we tried to we tried to um, say, or I tried to convey that like it just seemed kind of too good to be true that you can make yourself sound like the Ripper without having any intimate knowledge of the Ripper. You make yourself sound yeah. like it, but you don't know anything specific, and that adds on top of the second postcard, which if you I don't know if you take the idea that. I don't know. Like, you talk about the ear clippings. Yeah. That was weird. That I think it, it was a journalist and he just got lucky. Um, mm. I... I mean, my question to you, just posing, no, no real thing behind this, but just a question. Is it possible that Jack the Ripper had seen this letter? That's... The only people I think who would have seen this letter were the Central News Agency and, and the police. Exactly. So is it possible? I'm just saying, as of now, early in the story, since we're not talking about suspects much this episode, is it possible that Jack the Ripper had some sort of police connection? Wes, I think that certainly could be possible. However, we have we, I, I haven't looked into that yet. I haven't looked into any suspects. We, we tried yeah, to... we, we've tried to keep back from the suspects yeah. yet. Because we didn't want to talk about them this episode. That's not the goal of this episode. Speaking of which, let's move on. Yeah. Jesus. So... A, a a constant theme throughout the Jack the Ripper letters was that the writer who always said they were the killer would send a body part from one of the victims to the police. Uh, the initial Dear Boss letter, for example, contained the threat, the next job I, should, I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? This... These letters that arrived in the wake of the original Jack the Ripper missive contained only, among other artworks, crude drawings of female forms with jagged cuts, helpfully illustrating where on the bodies the author would make his incisions or mutilations. Pretty much, you could tell the hoax letters from the ones that the police seriously considered. Okay. Because the, the ones that the police seriously considered always included some sort of threat or yeah. something else related to a body part, whereas yeah. the hoax ones were just, ha, huh. I cut here. Yeah. So I made big cut this way. Yeah. Okay, buddy. So, there was one letter, mid-October 1888, that arrived that actually made good on the threat. And with the <clears throat> additional, additional suggestion that the killer had indulged in cannibalism. This, well, this letter, this letter takes the Jack the Ripper mystery... To, to a whole level. new yeah. level. This is where, like, it was already something severe. This goes beyond that. Yes. Yeah. So, Wes, do you remember Mr. George Lusk? The head of the Mile End Vigilance Committee that I told you about? Oh, God. Very... Oh, wait. Yes, I do. I yeah. do. I do. Yeah, the very beginning of this episode. Yep. So, uh... Hmm. He received the letter because he was so famous. That's him, why I pointed out that he was famous. Okay, he in particular yeah. got the letter. It was addressed to him. So... <clears throat> On account of his vigilance patrol activities, he had, um, what's it? He had been in the news a lot. He was very, yeah, yeah, yeah. very famous. Well, unfortunately, this attracted the wrong type of attention. 
At 4.15 p.m. on Thursday, the 4th of October, 1888, a man who the newspaper reports described as having a florid appearance turned up on Mr. Lusk's doorstep. The stranger was about 5 foot 9 in height and was aged between 30 and 40. He sported a bushy brown beard and had whiskers oh. and a mustache. The man was told that Mr. Lusk was at a nearby tavern that was kept by his son. So the man headed round to the tavern and, having <laughs> located Mr. Lusk, subjected him to a barrage of questions about the beats taken by the members of the Myland Vigilance Committee. He then, quote, attempted to induce Mr. Lusk to enter a private room with him, but, as the News of the World reported, quote, the stranger's appearance, however, was so repulsive and forbidding that Mr. Lusk declined, but, con but consented to hold a quiet conversation with him in the bar parlor. The two were talking when the stranger drew a pencil from his pocket and purposely dropped it over the side of the table, saying, Pick that up. Just as Mr. Mr. Lusk turned to do so, he noticed the stranger make a swift, though silent movement of his right hand towards his side pocket, and seeing that he was detected as... Oh, where I missed my spot. And seeing that, oh, no, I was right. And seeing that he was detected, assumed a nonchalant air, and asked to be directed to the nearest coffee and dining rooms. Mr. Lusk directed him to a house in the Mile End Road, and the stranger quietly left, uh, left the house, followed by Mr. Lusk, who went to the coffee house, uh, indicated, and followed that the man found. had, oh, sorry, and found that the man had not been there, but had given his pursuer the slip, by disappearing up a court. I miss my spot so many You You were moving your mouse and every once in a while. I miss my spot so many times throughout that one. So basically, he's sitting, uh, he's at a bar. He's when, at a bar. When this man guy... approaches him, who had already gone to his house to find him. Mm -hmm. This man approaches him. He's really weird. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where... He purposely, he drops, purposely a pencil. drops a pencil, tells Lust to pick him up, for, pick it up. For some reason, Lust does. And Lusk and everyone else present notices that this guy quickly reaches for his right side pocket. It's weird. I don't think this guy was Jack the Ripper. Oh, me But either. I think he, he may have been someone who planned to murder Lusk to make a name for himself. I agree. I think this guy was definitely a potential killer of Lusk. I don't think he was uh, the Ripper. He just yeah. seemed... Like, the Ripper seems like a kind of... Almost like a clean-cut man. Someone... Like a, um, a professional appearance. This guy was like... He was... Not he was he was not in good shape. So, two days later, Mr. Lusk received a letter that reportedly was written in a similar hand to that of the dear boss missive. The letter read, "I write you a letter in black ink, as I have no more of the right stuff. I think you are all asleep in Scotland Yard with your bloodhounds, as I will show you tomorrow night, Saturday." In quotations. Oh, in parentheses. God damn it! Don't say it. I know you want to say it. I, I didn't even notice. I'm so tired. I am going to do a double event, but not in Whitechapel. Got rather too warm there. Had to shift. No more till you hear from me again. Jack the Ripper. So, this was October 12th? Yeah, so you got this letter on October 12th. There were no murders that Saturday. Again, I think we, we've, de we've deduced that none yeah. of these letters are Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So... Lusk was becoming pretty unnerved with the amount of attention he was beginning to receive from the more unsavory elements of Eastern yep. society. And, uh, then... and this is when he gets a taunting postcard in the mail. Say, boss, you seem rather frightened. Rare frightened. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Let me start over. Say, boss, you seem rare frightened. Guess I'd like to give you fits, but can't stop time enough to let you box your, of to, to let your box of toys play copper games with me. But hope to see you 
when I don't hurry much. Bye-bye, boss. So on the 15th of October, a Miss March was working behind the counter in her father's leather shop at 218 Jubilee Street, close to the London Hospital, when a man dressed like a cleric entered. He was particularly interested in the Vigilance Committee's reward poster that was displayed in the shop window, and he questioned her about the address of Mr. George Lusk. Miss Marsh told him to, to ask at the nearby Crown Pub, but the man told her that he didn't want to go to a pub. She, therefore, got out a copy of a recent newspaper and found a report that mentioned Lusk Street, but which omitted his house number. This she read out whilst the man took it down in a notebook. According to Miss Marsh, the man was of slim build, was about 45 years of age, and around six foot tall. He had a sallow complexion with dark beard and a mustache. He spoke with what she took to be an Irish brogue. Shortly afterwards, on Tuesday, October 16, 1888, a small package, wrapped in brown paper and bearing an indistinct London postmark, was delivered to Lusk in the evening post. It was addressed to him by name and bore the name of the street, but did not give his house number. The parcel contained a foul-smelling piece of kidney together with a letter, the handwriting of which was the same as that of the postcard Lusk had received a few days before. The letter read, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sore. I send you half the kidney. Uh, it's Jesus. It's sore as in sorry. Yeah, I know, but his yeah. spelling. Sore. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved. Preserved. Oh my God. From one woman preserved it for you to other piece. Holy shit! This guy. I'm I know. Die. I know. <laughs> sorry. Let me let me start over. I'm gonna I'm gonna read. Please like don't I'm a, start over. I'm gonna read like I'm a child. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman preserved. It for you, tother piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Oh my god. Yeah. So. And look at not this. Not a single word is spelled Jesus. right. Yeah, look at this fucking handwriting. We have a picture here. Oh my god. But Lusk pretty much immediately figured out this was another sick prank. Yeah, and it's an awful one. He, he thought that the kidney was that of a, like a sheep or some other animal. However, he sought the opinions of the other Vigilance Committee members, including the committee's treasurer, Joseph Ahrens. As it transpired, none of them shared his opinion that the grisly package was a prank. So the general consensus was that they should seek a medical opinion, and so the kidney was taken to Dr. Frederick Wiles' Mile End Road Surgery. Although Wiles was not there, his, ass his assistant, Dr. Reed, examined the kidney and gave it as his opinion that it was human. The kidney was then taken to Dr. Openshaw because Reed thought it was advisable to seek his second opinion. Mm -hmm. And so it was taken to a London hospital where Dr. Thomas Openshaw, the pathological curator, examined it. Openshaw's findings would become the sub subject of much press debate, much press debate, sorry, not to mention misreporting in the days that follow, and Openshaw would become so alarmed by inaccuracies that would appear in various newspapers that he would go on record to correct them. Ultimately, the subsequent press coverage would encourage another Jack the Ripper letter writer to target Openshaw with his very own prank letter. I don't want to get into any of this. Agreed. I want to skip this if we can. Basically, <clears throat> Openshaw gave an official report that he believed that this kidney could have been procured by any medical student, any doctor, any anybody even remotely like connected to the medical field. Yeah. Anyone who worked at a hospital or a university in the medical any of those. This kidney did not necessarily have to come from someone. No, there was murdered. very little evidence that it actually came from her, and the record keeping was so bad we honestly have no idea to this day. Some the press, however, actively reported that Openshaw was saying that he believed it came from her. 
Openshaw was like, no, that is not true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all I really want to talk about. We need to get on to the last victim in the canonical five. Okay. Yeah. So this victim was one named Mary Kelly. She was much younger than the other victims of Jack the Ripper. She was about 25 years old. She was described as having a fair complexion, light hair, and possessing rather attractive features. Um, some people claim that they knew her quite well, but we don't actually know much about her at all. Um, it's said that she was relatively popular, and all that we really need to pay attention to is the fact that up until two weeks before her murder, she had been living with, uh, in a room in Miller's Court off Dorset Street in Spitalfields with an unemployed Billingsgate fish porter named Joseph Barnett. His lack of earnings meant that the rent on the room was in arrears, and Mary had resorted to prostitution. This led to arguments between them, and during one particularly heated exchange, apparently when Mary was tipsy, a pane of glass in the window by the door had been broken. The window was stuffed with newspaper and rags and was covered by an old coat. Then, in late October, Mary invited a homeless prostitute named Julia to stay with them. This proved too much for Joe Barnett, who decided enough was enough and moved out. Maria Harvey, who gave her occupation as laundress, told police that she had stayed with Kelly in her room on the Monday and Tuesday nights prior to her murder. She had then taken a room in New Court, Dorset Street, but had spent the Thursday afternoon with Mary Kelly in her room at Miller's Court. At around 7 p.m., Joe Barnett had arrived, and Maria Harvey left, leaving behind her black crepe bonnet, an overcoat, two dirty cotton shirts, a boy's shirt, and a girl's white petticoat. Joe Barnett had remained on friendly terms with Mary Keller and had last seen her alive when he called on her between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. on Thursday the 8th of November. He later said that there was another woman with him in the room, but that she left first. It is unlikely that he is referring to Maria Harvey since he knew her and would surely have mentioned her by name. He also said that the woman lived in Miller's Court, which Maria Harvey did not. A lot of people think he was talking about a lady by the name of Lizzie Albrook. Who we'll get back to. We will get back to, yes. So, this is, we're in November now. We've yeah. had a bit of a time it's been about, here. It's been about a month since, uh, a little <laughs> over a month since the last murder. I'll, you see that a lot. Between, mm -hmm. like, each murder, there's enough time for the public to settle down, and every time the public and the news are like okay he's done yeah and he's never done um so in his inquest testimony barnett stated that he last saw mary kelly alive between 7 30 and 7 45 the night of thursday before she was found it was i was with her about one hour is what he said so this could be interpreted either as he arrived between 7 30 and 7 45 or that he left between 7 30 and 7 45 given that he said it was the last time he saw her alive and that he was with her for about an hour he probably meant that he left around uh, 7.30 and 7.45. All right. So, uh, a possible scenario is that he arrived around 7 p.m., at which point Maria Harvey left. Whilst he was with Mary Kelly, they were visited by Lizzie Albrook. Uh, the website goes on to uh, opine that perhaps Lizzie and Mary were chatting before Lizzie left. We have no idea, but according to Barnett, as he left, he told Mary Kelly that he had had no work and was very sorry that he was unable to give her any money. He returned to his lodging house in Bishopsgate, and basically, it, it says he played whist until 12.30 a.m., at which time he retired to bed. That's his way, that's the, art, the website's way of saying he had an alibi. Not a great one, but yeah. Um... So at around 4 a.m. on the morning of the 9th of November, two neighbors claimed that they had heard a faint cry of, Oh, murder. But cries of murder were quite a regular occurrence in the neighborhood and often meant a drunken brawl was taking place or domestic violence was occurring. It was quite customary for those on the receiving end of such violence to scream murder. 
The local residents didn't want to get involved, and so they would ignore any such cries, as indeed did the two neighbors of Mary Kelly ignore the cry that they heard. Just, I just, I know I've said it a lot in this episode, well, last episode, a bit in this episode, but this is not helping the Brits' case at all in my mind. This is rough. This is angry. I mean, I know... I know we've both in these early episodes of the podcast established our our anime villain nemesises nemeses. The British, but now you're Yours starting to understand. British. Yours are the British. Yours I mean, yours. mine is of course AW Superstar Eddie, Eddie Kingston. Kingston. I forgot. Yeah. Sorry, mine's yeah. British, and now you are starting to understand. He why. literally haunts my nightmares. <laughs> it's true. He does. God forbid you see him on the television, especially dude, the big one now. Dude, oh my God, are you kidding me? I'm like. Argh! I, I start having like a Winter Jesus. Soldier episode. I, st- I like regress into like. It's if, true. He starts bad. trying to fight people. We don't yeah. understand why. It's a fight or flight, and I'm firmly in the fight. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> fight or flight. We're, we're getting off track. We're getting off track. Sorry, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> At about 10.45 a.m. that morning, Mary Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Bow- Bow- Bowyer? We'll call Bowyer. Bowyer. Who is also known as Indian Harry. I don't want to know why he got that name. Round to 13 Miller's Court to collect her overdue rent. He walked into Miller's Court and banged twice on her door. There was no answer. He believed that she was inside and unwilling to or unable to pay her rent, so he stepped around the corner and pulled aside a curtain that covered the broken window pane. However, moments later, he walked back into McCarthy's shop and said, I'm sorry, Governor, I knocked at the door and could not make anyone answer. I looked through the window and saw a lot of blood. Oh, sorry, it's another quote. Do you want me to read this one? Sure, you do that one. You don't mean that, Harry, was McCarthy's horrified response. And so they hurried from the shop and into Miller's court. Uh, When McCarthy gazed through the curtain and looked into the gloomy room, he was met with a horrifying sight. I don't want to get into it, but... Yeah, I, I dislike how it is stated in this yeah, the, part. Like, it's when really like, dramatized. Exactly. I'm reading like verbatim. It's very dramatized. It, it is like trying to almost try, disgusting. It, trying to say it in our our words, not theirs, because it's just it, basically they looked in the room and saw someone had been horrifically murdered. Exactly. Yeah. So Mary Kelly is easily the most mutilated of all of the victims. It is a brutal killing. Um. I want you to read this quote here, Wes. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> this is uh, McCarthy. Yeah. The sight that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than of a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I may never see such a sight as this again. She was apparently only recognizable via her eyes and teeth. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. It was really bad, guys. So, McCarthy sent Boyer to Commercial Street Police Station to fetch the police. And, having first stopped to secure his shop, hurried after him. Uh, Inspectors Walter Dew and Walter... Two Walters? (laughs) Goddamn. And Walter Beck were chatting inside the station when Boyer arrived. As Dew recalled in his memoirs... The poor fellow was so frightened that for a time he was unable to utter a single intelligible word. At last, he managed to stammer out something about another one, Jack the Ripper, awful, Jack McCarthy sent me. So Beck and Dew followed Boyer along Commercial Street in the direction of Dorset Street. When they arrived at Miller's Court, they tri- Miller's Court, Dew tried the door, but it would not open. Beck r- moved to the window and gazed into the room. 
Almost instantly, he staggered back. For God's sake, True. Don't Dew. look. It's Dew. Oh. Yeah, same difference. Dew ignored the order and looked through the window. He <clears> said he saw a sight that would stay with him until his dying day. Uh, yeah, we I can read into what he said in his memoir. No, but I don't. I don't want to do we, that. We'll skip that part because it, it you, you'd have to talk about the sight yeah. a bit, and, and it it is bad. It is it's rough. So yeah. Oh, sorry. It's not her eyes and teeth. It was her eyes and ears. So yeah, but so thorough Jesus were the mutilations Christ. to Mary Kelly's face that her lover Joseph Barnett was later only able to identify her by her eyes and ears. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna move over the post mortem report. <clears throat> But this one wasn't found immediately, unlike the other ones. This one was found way later. Like, most of the other murders were found within hours. This one was found the next day. Which oh, means yeah, yeah. we don't have a lot of evidence as to what might have happened. We don't know when the Ripper was there. We have, we have no, no clue. We don't know yeah. much about Mary Kelly herself, and we don't know much about her murder. The, the only thing we know about this is it is a, it is a rough... <clears throat> That's a, that was a rough paragraph to read. Yeah. And, and that was just the, the beginning statement. Okay, Wes, we're on to Alice McKenzie. Now, this one on. has a mortuary photo. Okay. So just do me a favor and look away from the screen while I, while I scroll a little bit. Okay. I'm not looking. I don't want to see it. Okay. Shit. I'm going to have you look away again later, but as of right now, this is all we need. So, Alice McKenzie was murdered in the early hours of July 17th, 1889, and immediately speculation was rife that her death might spell the return of Jack the Ripper after a prolonged absence for the streets of the East End of some nine months. Okay, This hold is on. 1889 at this point. What the fuck? Yeah. No other, no other murders that people thought could have been Jack the Ripper until this one. This is, this is not one of the canonical five. From yeah, now yeah. on, we are talking about people who most experts believed were not part of the murders. Oh wait, so we're talking about people that they believe were not. So we're not Jack the Ripper murders. Th these yeah. are these are potential murders, but yeah. also may not be. The only reason we are talking about them now is because they are included in the Whitechapel murders file that the police had. A as speculation possible. Yes. So okay, let's get into it. Okay. So at twelve fifty AM on the seventeenth of July, eighteen eighty nine. Police Constable Walter Andrews found the body of local prostitute Alice McKenzie lying close to a lamppost on a pavement in Castle Alley, just off Whitechapel High Street. So, I don't want to describe any of her her appearance because it will get into some of the wounds she had, but the Divisional Police Surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who you will remember <coughs> was on site for a, lot of, for a few of the uh, Ripper murders, was summoned, and having examined the body, he pronounced life extinct. Please look away. I'm going to scroll past the mortuary okay. photo. So there's a description of the deceased, which we're going to ignore. Well, okay, we can we can read part of it. To, okay, good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this quote. Wes, there's no there's no more. Oh, photo. you didn't tell yeah. me I could look sorry, back. Sorry, sorry. So, um, the victim of the murder was about 45 years of age and was about five foot four inches in height. She had brown hair and eyes and a fair complexion. She is believed to have been of the, quote, unfortunate class, but has not yet been identified. She wore a red staff bodice patched under the arm and a brown staff skirt. She also had on a linesy petticoat, black stockings, buttoned boots, and a paisley shawl, but no hat or bonnet. One peculiarity in the description may serve for purposes of identification. Part of the nail on the thumb of the left hand is deficient. Hmm. So the article also mentioned that a clay pipe had been found near the woman's body. Okay. So, in the same issue, they reported the woman had been identified later on the day uh, of the murder. So, 
Do you want me to read this one? You can read this, yeah. Okay. Uh, several hours elapsed before the woman was identified, but a man, uh, but a man named John McCormick came forward during the day and recognized her as Alice McKenzie, who, with whom he had lived for six or seven years, and who has for some time lodged with him as his wife, as oh, as his wife, as his wife at a common a, lodging house in Gun Street, kept by a man named Tenpenny. McCormick stated that he did not. He did not know whether the deceased had been married and that the reason of her going out last night was that they had a slight quarrel and that she had never, to his knowledge, been out late at night previously. McCormick speaks of her as a hardworking woman and seems very much upset at the occurrence. So, uh, these are just sketches of like what she looked like, which I'd, I'd rather not look at. But uh, McCormick also explained that the pipe belonged to the deceased uh, who, so he testified at the subsequent inquest in her death, quote, smoked a great deal and used a clay pipe. Um, she was actually known as Clay Pipe <coughs> Alice in the in the district. Um, so she's been identified. Um, her, you know, her body's been identified. Yeah. But immediately, Dr. Phillips later reported that the woman's injuries did not suggest to him that this was the work of Jack the Ripper. He would know because he's seen literal river Yeah, victims. so he, he's a bit of an expert there. There was, however, disagreement as to whether Alice McKenzie's murder marked the river's return. James Monroe, who had taken over as police commissioner from Sir Charles Warren, arrived at the scene of the murder just after 3 a.m. Later that day, he reported to the home office that, quote... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I was zoning yeah, out thinking about this out. dude. Every effort will be made to discover the murderer, who I am inclined to believe is identical with the notorious... Jack the Ripper of last year. So, remember the previous. That's what I was just thinking about. Like, Sir Charles Warren, the one we fucking hate. This guy immediately is like, "Oh, well, it must have been Jack the Ripper." Well, I just wanted to mention, like James Monroe. I've never heard his fucking name before, so he has not been involved with this as no, far as we is, know. He's new. He he's new. He's taking over as commissioner. I don't know if this is just a movie trope or if it's a British thing, but for some fucking reason, this guy is like, "All right." I would know. I'm the expert here. I'm in charge. Like, this is ridiculous. And and I'm guessing that with that, we get some press feed because of it, too, yeah. right? So, oh. Dr. Thomas Bond, who examined the body of Alice McKenzie <clears throat> at the mortuary, was also of the opinion that the injury suggested that this was another Ripper killing. Dr. Phillips, on the other hand, the one who has actually seen a Ripper victim yeah. and fucking, like, actually uh, examined uh, bodies of Ripper victims opined that the wounds were not severe enough to suggest a Jack the Ripper-style killing. He did not believe it was the a same person. After reading the last one, I 100 fucking 100% percent believe. Agree. There's yeah. no way you go from the last one to this. Yeah. So, Robert Anderson, who was away on holiday at the time of Alice McKenzie's murder, was later adamant that this murder was not the work of the Ripper and stated that, quote, The murder of Alice McKenzie was by another hand. Anderson also suggested that Monroe had later changed his opinion and had come to believe that her murder was, quote, in, this is his quote, not, this is this guy's quote, not, not me. An ordinary murder and not the work of a sexual maniac. God, I hate this guy. I just, I don't like 90% of the people in this fucking story. Like, in, yeah. in, in, in all of this, I think some of the only people I've actually liked are the victims and the people they knew. Yeah. God. So, however, at the time, the district's populace as a whole Ugh. were like... Fuck, it's Jack the Ripper, and the press ate that shit up. So, 
Uh, the East London Observer reported, quote, wait, the murder wait, feed no, is at his terrible ghastly work again. Other stuff like that. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Go back. That said 89. We're in 89 right now, Yeah, right? we're in 89, yeah. Okay, and the last, conf- or sorry, the last canonical, the five, canonical was five was 87. The was, like, November 88. 88. Oh, sorry, 88. Yeah. So, November 88, that is when the, the five, I thought it was seven. It was November. It was November. Of, of 87, right? 88. Go check. Wes? Oh, it was 88. Okay, no, yeah, no, you're right. I saw it. I saw it. It was 88. It's okay. been 88 Anyway, anyway. So, you're right. It has been 88. What the fuck am I talking about? So, the Canonical Five, who we believe are the Ripper victims, that happened mo- like months and months prior to this. Okay, I just I just want to make sure I have my timeline about, right. About that, nine months. Yeah. Looking at the severity of this victim and the last one and the time in which, I I don't believe it. Honestly, like I'm I'm going out like this is a, a little tease for next week. Not knowing any of the of the suspects, I think Jack the Ripper's dead at this point, and we'll get to. You think he's already dead by this point of the story? I personally think you do not go from what he did. To anything, I don't even think you stop at that point. When you look at serial killers, just there's usually not a point in which someone stops unless they are physically unable to do so. And I think that wow. I think that something caused Jack the Ripper to physically be incapable of doing so. Probably death. Uh, looking at the time, you know, this is back in 80, 88, 89 in London. He doesn't seem to be very rich, so it's possible that his lifespan well, wasn't that I long. I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm, I'm personally of the belief at this point that he's like a sailor. Because it just well, lines he, up with a lot of that guy said he looks like a sailor, Jake. Yeah, you're on. To well, something. that and like uh, one of the one of the people had said that yeah. you know it was like a soldier of some type. Maybe he was just a sailor, and <clears throat> we'll get to it. Yeah. So the, the papers went wild with with stuff. <sighs> a um, bunch of shit we don't even. Yeah, even the know. police be, were of the opinion that whoever the murderer was, they were staying at a common lodging house. They searched them all, and nothing came of it. The press, of course, said it was the Ripper coming back. The press thought it was the thought it was Jack the Ripper. The police did not. Yeah, but of course they considered the possibility, so they added it to the file, and that's why we're talking about it now. Wes, did you just see that? No, it okay, went good, too good, fast. Good, 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 good. Sorry, I didn't. I I realized I didn't. You're fine. I'm I don't sorry. Care. Okay, so the next the next uh, victim <laughs> we're going to talk about is the Pynchon Street torso. Oh, I know the this. The 10th of September, 1889. Oh, God. Yeah, so this it's is an unknown woman. woman. On Wednesday, eleventh, uh, on Wednesday, the eleventh of September, eighteen eighty-nine, uh, mystery of mysteries was was the headline. Uh, the New York Herald told its readers that quote London in general and Whitechapel in particular were thrown into a feverish state of excitement yesterday morning by the news that quote Jack the Ripper had murdered and mutilated his ninth victim. Both the murder and the mutilation were reported to be and indeed proved to be more horrible than in any of the eight cases preceding. So. I should point out, there is one more victim. Mm-hmm. The eight cases preceding, I'm not necessarily sure I'm. I know which eight it's talking about. He's talking about the canonical five. Yep. Uh, probably Martha Tabram. Yep. Um, it's it's possible it was some that the police didn't even believe to no, be. I th- I think it's probably. <clears throat> It's probably one of the ones in the file. I'm just trying to think of who it might be. It's all right. It's okay. Yeah, but because I, 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 I bet it was. I bet it was. Um, sorry. I I know that's loud. I bet it was. I bet it was Alice. 
Yeah, Alice probably. McKenzie and I, I guarantee Alice McKenzie was part of it. Yeah. Anyway, so that that's seven, but whatever. Uh, so yeah, they they found a torso. It was pretty mutilated. The mutilations actually lined up with the Rippers' uh, modus operandi, but unfortunately. They realized that due to the blood where the torso was found, the lack of blood really, the murder must have taken place somewhere else and about 36 hours previous. And then the body was dumped there. Just yeah, the torso. that's that's not a doesn't sound thing. like Jack the Ripper. So it's horrible and gross and terrible, but that doesn't seem to be Jack the Ripper. Are we gonna talk yeah. about Phillips? Uh, are we? I thought I read a name. Oh no, that wasn't Phillips. Never mind. No. So the the. <laughs> The fact that the kill uh, the killing was probably done about 36 hours beforehand and that it was not done at the actual spot where the yeah. body was found led a lot of people to believe that uh, it was not a ripper killing. Well, let's were, find out well, what the hero of this story, Chief Commissioner James Monroe, thought. All right. God, Come on, James. This guy. So James Monroe... We're not laughing at, at this story. We're laughing at something entirely different that Jake is going to burn in hell for. <laughs> okay. In his in his report um, on September 11th, 1889, he uh, entered into a detailed comparison of this murder with the previous Whitechapel murders and observed that, quote, if this, a fresh outrage by the Whitechapel murderer, known by the horrifically familiar nickname of Jack the Ripper, this murder committed in the murder in the murderer's house would be a new departure from the system hitherto. Hither hither oh, hitherto. Yeah. I've never seen that spelt out. Yeah. I feel like an idiot. Hitherto pursued by this ruffian. I am, however, inclined to believe that this case was not the work of the Ripper. Oh my god. So for god. once, he's actually kind of right. That's because like, Phillips was in his ear right before he went out. Yeah. Like, if Phillips you like, fucking I'd say this. swear to god if you tell the press it was a Ripper killing. I'll make you a Ripper killing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Phillips probably the whole time is like, I will fucking kill I, you. I will do it. Just I know shut how. your goddamn mouth. Unlike that asshole, I'm a medical professional who knows what I'm doing. Yeah, so... um. <clears throat> Monroe made the uh, obvious. That's, uh, that, he, he made an obvious uh, observation that they couldn't tell whether the throat had been cut because there was no head. Good job, Monroe. Yeah, glad, he's literally glad we had you there to tell Monroe's us. Monroe's literally going to tell us some of those obvious things about the gross mutilation, which basically yeah. leaves us to believe that although it's a horrific crime, it was. Well, not this torso Jack had not actually been mutilated much, other than dismemberment. So. I know, but, uh, sorry, potential mutilation that would have come from a Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Uh, from, like, one of the canonical five. So we actually have no idea who who this woman was to this day. Yeah. Uh, the coroner, Wynn Baxter, you remember uh, Oregon yeah. guy? Yeah. Pointed out that there was, quote, no evidence as the identity of the deceased, but that the statements of the medical gentleman in the case showed clearly that the woman had died a violent death. He also observed that, quote, it was a matter of congratulation that the present case did not appear to have any necessary connection with the previous murders in the immediate neighborhood. Basically, he's saying it's a good thing we don't think this is a Ripper victim, but we don't know who this woman was. Yeah, as it is sad, but she's. Uh, I think yeah. we all are kind of on the same page, at least with these... Um, this is the second one of the files, right, That we that's past the Canonical 5? Yes. I, I'm... Third. No, second. Yeah, I'm inclined already to believe that both of these are not Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Basically, I, if... I fully believe the Martha Tavern one was an early Ripper killing. And I agree. a lot of people do. I um, agree. 
I think if Dr. Phillips tells me anything, I'll listen to him. We're going to get... Dr. Phillips? Yeah. The... More like Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dr. It's, it's actually Dr. Phil. Doctor, not an actual Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah. Not a real medical Dr. Phil. Um, so... Guy's a scumbag. <laughs> he's as much of a scumbag as half the people in this fucking story. He How do we know there. he's not Jack the Ripper? You're oh my bitch. god. I'm gonna <laughs> kill you. <laughs> Say, you're a bitch. <laughs> open this door, you fucking bitch. I'm gonna throw a rock. Or no, open this door. I'm gonna throw a brick through your window, you fucking whore. <laughs> God, Dr. <laughs> Phil, why did you say these things? They're out of context, Dr. Oh my Phil. Oh god, I love it. Anyway, back to murders. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, th- we're, this brings us to the final victim whose name appears in the Whitechapel murders file, Francis Coles. <laughs> Francis Coles' body was discovered at 2.15 a.m. on Friday the 13th of February, 1891. Yeah, like two years after the last one. Because the last one was in 89. Yeah, 89. Yeah. Jesus By police Christ. constable Ernest Thompson as he was passing through an archway of the Great Eastern Railway, which led from Swallow Gardens to Ormond Street. Thompson had passed the spot 15 minutes before and was adamant that the body hadn't been there then. Returning at 2.15 a.m., he heard a man's footsteps walking away from him and looked into the arch, and looking into the arch, he noticed a figure lying on the ground. He shined his lamp on it and found that it was a body of a woman and that she was lying in a pool of blood, Mm. which was flowing from a terrible wound in the throat that ran from ear to ear. Jesus Christ. He immediately blew his whistle to raise the alarm. There's the whistle again. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, I know. And uh, the neighboring beat officers, Police Constable Hyde and Police Constable Hinton, came running to the scene. They were soon joined by Police Constable Elliot, who was on plain clothes duty in adjacent Royal Mint Street. Elliot later stated that shortly after 2 o'clock, he had heard a whistle blown, and on Going to Swallow Gardens, he saw a constable with his lamp turned on the body of a woman. He later stated that he was certain that he would have heard any cry from the woman, but everything was quiet until he heard the whistle. Checking for signs of lice, the off- life, sorry. Check for signs of lice. Jesus. Sorry. The officers found the body to be quite warm, and they also felt a very faint pulse. Police Constable Hyde was then sent to fetch the local medic, Dr. Oxley, who arrived at the scene and pronounced life extinct. Police Constable Hinton, meanwhile, headed off to the police station to fetch a senior officer. He returned with Inspector Flanagan, who promptly ordered the police officers who were now arriving at the scene to search the area and to stop and question anybody who they thought suspicious or who might be able to provide any information. Meanwhile, in accordance with instructions issued during the murders of 1888, Flanagan ordered that the body was to remain in the position in which it was discovered, and he then carried out an in-depth search of the surroundings for clues. Soon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, that... Fucking G, the, 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 the police one, surgeon. The one legitimate, almost, like, hero of the story. Yeah. Who yeah, we, actually did his fucking job. Who we job. did compare to Dr. Phil a few minutes ago. Sorry, Oops. sorry, Phillips. My bad. No, that's Monroe. He's Dr. Yeah. Fucking Dr. Monroe. Not Dr. Monroe. Commissioner Monroe. I do not think that this is a Ripper victim. This is not a Ripper victim. A real Ripper victim would look like this. Like a, and then he starts cutting. Jesus, you sound like, um... The teacher from South Park. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, he's the counselor, Mr. Mackey. Oh, but yeah, that's oh right. My that's right. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I think my favorite, my favorite South Park joke I've ever seen is when he's Mr. Mackey, he's writing a note, and he writes, okay, every time he puts Oh, my God. Oh, just that attention to detail I love. It's such a dumb joke, but I love it. Anyway. Anyway. Back to Phillips. Sorry. Not Dr. Phil. Yeah. Dr. Phillips. Uh, Dr. Phillips, the divisional police surgeon, had arrived at the scene, and on examining the body, he found two cuts to the woman's throat, which he stated were, quote, sufficient to account for death. 
Crucially, Phillips was of the opinion that the nature of the wound and the posture of the body did not connect this murder, quote, with the series of previous murders which were accompanied by mutilation. However, newspapers quickly connected this murder with the previous Jack the Ripper's murder, and, well, the Times reported something that I'm not going to read, because fuck that. Because it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the East London Advertiser, in an article on Saturday the 14th of February, 1894. Ah, oh, that's our birthday. I noticed. Yeah. Except not our birthday, sorry. Exact date of birth is... Sorry, Wes had to cut me. Anyway, so, uh, he observed that the woman's injuries were not really comparable to those suffered by previous victims, but noted that they were, there were most certainly similarities in the choice of victim, this time, uh, the time of the murder and the location of the murder. Since the woman had not been formally identified with the inquest into her death opened on Saturday, 14th of February, the coroner referred to her as a, quote, woman unknown. However, people had come forward to identify her as Frances Cole, who for some months past had resided in common lodging houses in Thrall Street and Flower and Dean Street, and who had, in the words of the Times, been leading an irregular life. Fuck the Times. Go fuck yourself. Can we get back? Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Can we go back to the daily fucking mail? Yeah, Jesus. Anyway, so on the night of Saturday, the 14th of February, 1891, Detective Sergeants Record and Curd managed to locate Francis Cole's father, James Williams Cole, James William Cole, sorry, who was in Bermondsey Workhouse, and Mary Ann Coles, her sister, who lived in Kingsland. According to the East London Advertiser, The old man, who was very feeble, was taken to the mortuary in a cab and had no difficulty in identifying the body as that of Francis Coles, his daughter. Another sister, named Selina, is also known to be living in Kingsland. The deceased was at one time engaged as a labeler, as a la yeah, as a labeler at a wholesale chemist factory in the Minories. It has transpired that she left her lodgings in Thrall Street about five weeks ago, but on Thursday last, between nine and ten o'clock, returned and asked for her landlady, Miss Hogue, to let her come back and promised to pay what she owed. She then went away, but Miss Hogue subsequently saw her in a public house at the corner of Mon Monte Montague. Uh, Montague Street. She was with a man who was treating her to a drink. He was of fair complexion and had a light mustache. Miss Hogue also identified the body. So, now the woman had been identified as Frances Coles, the police turned their attention to who might have been responsible for her murder and became very interested in the identity of the man, Miss Hogue. Miss Hague. Hague? Uh, yeah. But Miss Haig had, had seen, seen treat treating her to a drink. So we are getting into. I know we talked about that one guy episode one, but uh, we'll, we'll see. He, John Pizer. Yeah. yeah, this is. Um, I think we also were able to kind of say John Pizer probably is enough. Probably isn't I I think we agreed on that that he was not a sub. I'm, we have it written down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we said it was. We said it was a possibility. In fact, get ready to write down whether we think this guy's. Yeah, you're right. Well, we. I put, don't think. Well, we put. He's not a. He's not a suspect for the Ripper murders. Oh. Yeah, just for this murder. So oh, I well, guess no, we don't no, forget that guy. Fuck that guy. So, his name was James Thomas Sadler. Her companion had been James Thomas Sadler, a 53-year-old merchant seaman and fireman on the SS Fez, whom she had met in the Princess Alice pub on February 11th, two days before her murder. Sadler was a former client of hers, and after a few drinks, they decided to spend the night together. They spent most of the February 12, 1891, on a pub crawl around the area, and by evening, both of them were extremely intoxicated. At around 7.30 p.m. that evening, Frances turned up at a milliner's club at 25 Nottingham Street, where she brought a black crepe hat, paying for it with two S dot six D dot? The fuck is that? 
fuck it, Jake. It's it's British language. Some money that Sadler had given her th some hours before. According to Peter Hawks, the man who served her, Francis was, quote, three sheets in the wind. What does that fucking mean? Drunk as shit. Yeah, okay, yeah. <clears throat> Leaving the shop, she had, according to Hawks, gone off in the company of a man who had been looking in through the window whilst Coles was in the shop. Hawks would later pick Sadler out of the lineup at Lehman Street Police Station as the man she had gone off with. Later that night, as they were making their way along Thrall Street, Sadler was attacked by a woman in a red shawl who came upon him from behind. Two men who were with the woman then robbed him of his watch and money. Fucking scrub. So, it appears that Francis watched the attack and failed to intervene, much to Sadler's disgust, who told the police during questioning that he had been angry at Francis for not helping him when he was down. An argument ensued, and the two of them went their separate ways. At 11.30pm, a very drunk Francis Cole turned up at a lodging house where they had spent the previous night. Sitting down on a bench in the kitchen, she rested her head on her arms and promptly fell fast asleep. A very belligerent Sadler turned up soon after, his face bloodied and bruised. Oh, I'm sorry, I've been focusing on that. I have been robbed, he told Charles Guyver, the night watchman. And if I knew who had done it, I would do for them. Guyver helped Sadler clean up in the backyard. But since Sadler didn't have any money to pay for a bed, he had no choice but to ask him to leave. At 12.30 a.m. on 13th of February, Frances woke up, and since she also lacked the money for a bed, she was forced to leave the lodging house. At 1.45 a.m., Frances met fellow prostitute Ellen Kalena on Commercial Street. Shortly after this meeting, according to Galena's later testimony, she was solicited by, quote, a violent man in a cheese cutter hat. Galena refused him, whereupon the man punched her in the face and blacked her eye. He then approached Francis Cole, who ignored Galena's advice to leave the man well alone and headed off towards Mineries with the man. Meanwhile, Thomas Sadler had tried to force his way back on board his ship, the SS Fez, and had become involved in a violent altercation with a group of dock workers in the course of which he sustained a nasty scalp wound. Having made two attempts to get into a lodging house in East Smithfield, Sadler was next spotted on the pavement outside the Royal Mint by Sergeant Edwards, who later recalled that he appeared drunken and bloodied. The officer could plainly see that Sadler had been assaulted and questioned him. Sadler stated that he had been attacked by some men against the London Dock Gates, who had, quote, brutally ill-used him. On the Saturday morning, acting on descriptions and information from various witnesses, including Sergeant Edwards, Detective Sergeant Don and Detective Gill, tracked Sadler down at the Phoenix Beer House and arrested him. Sadler offered no resistance and was arrested and taken before Chief Inspector Donald Sutherland Swanson, who, having cautioned him, suggested, su subjected him to a searching examination. Sadler admitted to having known Francis Cold and, also, and having also been in her company. However, he was adamant that he had nothing to do with her murder. There were reports in the press that the cut to Francis Cole's throat was very like the cut on Alice McKenzie's throat, and there was evidently some suspicion that he might also have been responsible for that crime, if not the other Whitechapel murders. Forget the times. Get out of here. Yeah. Move on. So, police inquiries had also uncovered a man by the name of Donald Campbell, who claimed that he had purchased the knife from Sadler on the Friday morning for one shilling. Campbell noticed that the knife's handle was clammy and that its blade was stained. He therefore washed the knife, noticing as he did so that the water had a reddish appearance. Campbell afterwards sold the knife, but was able to provide detectives with the name of the person who had purchased it from him, and according to the Times, quote, By that means, it was secured. On Sunday morning, Campbell went to the Lem to the Lemon, is it Lehman? Lehman. To the Lehman Street Police Station and picked Sadler out from amongst a number of other men. On the 24th of February, 1891, Sadler appeared at the Thames Police Court charged with, quote, willfully causing the death of Francis Cole by cutting her throat with a knife on the 13th inst... What was inst... Okay, whatever. Oh, no, he killed her. Yeah. 
so on Friday the 27th of February 1891, the inquest into Francis Cole's death drew to its conclusion. The coroner, Wynne Baxter, this fucking guy again, told the jury of the case, sorry, that the case, quote, had many characteristics in common with the murders which had preceded it, but it was for the jury to decide, taking well into consideration Settler's drunken condition, the conflicting evidence as to times, and the connected account given by him of his movements before and after the murder was committed, whether they could fairly charge him with the deed, or must attribute it to some person or persons unknown. The jury retired to consider their verdict, and on their return, the foreman said, <coughs> We find that the deceased was willfully murdered by some person or persons unknown, and we wish to say that we think the police did their duty in detaining Sadler. Basically, Sadler's uh, guilt in connection with the murder of Francis Coles was proven, and there was speculation that Jack the Ripper may have been caught at last. God damn the Brits for having to make everything so confusing with their words. Yeah. Just say guilty, Your yeah. Honor. We think that asshole did it. But case against him immediately fell apart. Sadler was able to prove that he had indeed been mugged and that he had not actually been with Francis Cole in the hours before she was murdered. When it was also revealed that the knife was probably too blunt to have inflicted the wound on Cole's throat, the case against him collapsed. He was also able to prove that he had been at sea with some of the, when some of the other murders had occurred. We did say we thought he was a sailor, though. I was going to say, I want to get back to that, but, but let's keep going yeah. with this. In early March of uh, 1891, the Director of Public Prosecutions wrote to Sadler's solicitors informing them that, quote, So far, as the prosecution is concerned, it is not intended to offer evidence tomorrow before the magistrate Heron. Heron? Heron. Heron, yeah. And application will be made to him to permit the adoption of this course. Uh, he appeared against the court and basically... Uh, the, the prosecution basically told the court that they had no more evidence. So, uh, there were many who had been convinced of Sadler's innocence, and as Sadler left the court, he was greeted by a large crowd who proceeded to cheer as a cab drove him away. The crowd ran after his carriage, whereupon, according to the Times, Sadler put his head out of the cab window and waved his hat. Whoa, thank you so much, Jack the Ripper website. Yeah. We needed that so much. Yeah, we really did Jesus need Christ. So, I, we'll get back to the sale. We'll get... We will talk about the um, uh, the suspects, suspects more. next episode. That's going to be what we basically dedicate almost the entirety of the episode to. Yeah. Um, but Wes, if you take a look, which will be a much shorter episode than I'm this gonna, one. I'm just gonna do this. If you look at suspects, that's all the suspects we got to talk Holy about. Holy! So we got fuck a lot of people. I to talk lied. About. Yeah, there are so many. We can actually vote for which one we think is. Is the See, that's what I'm talking about with this fucking website, I know. dude. Like, it's not a fucking democracy. One of them fucking did it. Well, it's also not like, it's like, hey, punch in your vote. Join the conversation. <laughs> One of them. This actually, happened so long ago. Spoiler alert. Oh, Louis wait, Dame wait, shoots. Wait, and, and, guess what? Okay, all right. But... Shh. We'll get to it. Okay. Right. So, you know, no, no spoilers, but a bunch Charles of Charles. Jake, holy shit. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I will cut your mic. <laughs> Um, so that, that's about it for this week, isn't it? Did you just cut my mic? I cut my mic. Oh, okay. You're still going to be picked up on mine. Yeah, so, it's okay. that's it for the murders, isn't it? Yep. Um. That's it for the murders. Wow, well, this is so, going to be almost two hours. I, I know. Mean, we're going to cut so, something out. But not, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll cut a little bit out. This is. cut that, that one thing I said out. This is going to be our. The one thing I'm going to I know, Jake. <laughs> I wrote it down. This is going to be, uh, our, about our longest episode yet. So I, I don't want to do another episode as long as this one because I'm fucking exhausted. I and agree. my throat hurts from reading so much. 
I agree. I um I would like to keep next episode shorter, which is why this episode is so long. We just wanted to push through the fucking murders because oh my god, some of them are just some of them are just, like reading some of that stuff is awful. Yeah, and we don't want to talk about it. why are you doing this, and, and we just wanted to to push out of the way so that part three, the final episode, will be all about the suspects, who we think it is. We'll throw it out to you guys. Watch this That's vote the real on it. Go to Twitter is. and vote. Fuck this yeah. website, man. <laughs> this website makes me so mad because it really just like... It does glorify the shit out of it. We it's like, hey, let's have fun and talk about Jack the Ripper. And it's like, people die! It, it, but it's also like, this happened, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. And it's like, like, like what we're making, you know, it's, it's a game show now. Jesus, yeah. God. So, that's it. I mean, those are... I... I'm going to withhold my judgment on that last murder. i got to sit on that. Because I think there's very credible reasons it could be Jack the Ripper who did it. I yeah. also I also was thinking about your sailor thing. Not knowing the suspect list, I wanted to pose the question. Uh-huh. Have there been murder? Like, if we could track... Like, let's say we track down... One ship, like, what was it, the SS Fez or whatever? Yeah, the SS Fez. Let's say we find a ship like the SS Fez. We track its movement through these this two-year time frame, or even before, wherever we think he started. If we look at those places, if we found unsolved heavy mutilation killings, is it, like, could we then find Jack the Ripper? Is that not a possibility? I mean, that is something I, I'm pretty sure people have looked at, because I, I, I did look at one of the suspects, just the first one, I think. Or, or one of them. But and that, I, I looked at one of them, of and, and one of the ideas was that uh, one of... We'll get into it, but he uh, had had been, like... He had gone to America for a bit, and there had been some murders. See, that's... Okay, that murder. that was my um that was my curiosity, and like we however, said... However, it should be pointed out, there was a lot of... there's As always, there's a lot of, like, immigration and stuff going on, so that doesn't prove anything, but, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> immigration was We'll talk a thing. about it more. We'll talk about it more. It will make... Basically, what, what that means is, like, because there were just so many people going back and forth, just because one person happened to be in both places at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. I, I feel the need to say that because, like, the website goes like, oh, shit, it could have been this guy. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck. But we will definitely talk about it in yeah. part three. Um, we'll talk about all the suspects we, we want to talk I'm not going to even look at the suspect. Oh, I want to, though. So, no. you know what? No, I'll do it. Don't worry, man. I, no, I think I will. I no, think. Don't, don't. Please stop touching me. I think I'm actually going to look at the suspects and get my... Because I want... I went into this blind, and I regret it. I want to I want to read through the suspects and get my own personal take before we get into this uh, in part three. Because that's... Like, when we when we chose this case, or when we, we started this, that was our... That's what we wanted to work towards was the suspects. It took two parts, part two, which was very fucking long. Um, but we have now successfully gotten through all these murders, except for, of course, some American ones we, we will yeah. touch on in part three. Um, part well, three. I, I don't know if we're going to touch too much on those mention, American ones. We're we'll going to mention that there were some murders at the time. Um, I, part part I three could be uh, part three could be two hours long for all I care. I'm not doing a part four. We're finishing yeah. this out. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think if you, if, if we had stuck to our hour 15 benchmark that we usually stick to. It would have been a four part. It would have been easily a four part, just by now. I, I'm willing to sacrifice a two hour, two hour episode 
than part four because yeah. I'm not wasting another week on this. Jesus God, this is awful. Like reading some of that stuff, hearing about. I all- mean, this this gives you plenty of time to write your next episode. You're right. I'll wait until uh, the day before. Yeah, that's kind of what I do. But well, meantime, yeah, we God, just, yeah, we could do that. You know, for please stop, Jesus. <laughs> dances. Oh, dances. No, you're not. You're trying to hit me. That's what that was. Oh. Stop. <laughs> um, well, we will work on uh, the gaming channel. Yep. Twitter.com at half capital H, talentless capital T. You can find us. You can. We're gonna post uh, some of the letters. We're gonna, you know, as always. If you have any ideas for stuff we should cover, feel free to tweet us. Uh, you can reply to any of our tweets and, you know, yeah. tell us what you liked about what episodes and anything you want. We are, we're still relatively small. So if you do it now, we'll you'll probably, be cool later. Yeah. We'll probably, well, I won't say we'll respond cause I'm not going to respond to everything. Cause that's, okay, Jake, you'll, you'll be, but cool I will later. notice it. I get you, a notification for each one. I will look at each one later on smile. when we're super famous and we're, you know, surpassing the Joe uh, Rogan experience. You yeah. can tell people, yeah, I knew them back then. And you can sound like one of those hipsters. To, to surpass the Joe Rogan experience, do we have to tap into, like, a group of, of people who are just the worst? Oh, we'll get... Uh, Jake, did you not read what I just read? We're kind of already doing that. Well, Jesus. Whoa. whoa, whoa. These people are Look, awful. Yeah, well, yeah. They're yeah. awful. We did not talk but about Wes, one good are, person besides Phillips. But, Wes, are they as bad as some of the people Joe Rogan has had on? Some of them, yes, Jake. You mean to tell me if Joe Rogan knew who Jack the Ripper was and Jack the Ripper was alive, Joe? Oh, Rogan he would, would absolutely. Like, Let's have a conversation, bro. He would absolutely have. You ever done DMT? <laughs> <laughs> he would. He would talk about his workout regimen. So I know you're. You're. You know. You're not a tall guy, but you're really. Uh, you're really you stout. Got, you got a stature. You're a sailor, you know? right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. You. Christ. You. You eat elk meat. You, you, have you ever had elk meat? You ever done DMT? <laughs> really, really high in protein. Really great. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I Like, you know, we we do this little post-show ramble every episode. Every episode. To kind of come down from what we just talked about. There is no come down from this. We're just wa- going to walk away. I'm going to try and sleep. We spent two hours God on damn. this. I feel yeah, I awful. Sleep. I want to cry. Like, this is terrible. So, I mean, yeah. I guess what we'll leave it on a slightly brighter note uh, the Half Talentless Gaming Channel is now officially up. No videos yet, but we'll be working is on that up? this week. Can I week. find it right now? You can look it up right now. We're there. We're there? Yep. We have a name and a description. That's it. But, um... Yep. No, 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 no. Just gaming. It's just Half Talentless Gaming. <laughs> Why did I look up channel? We're there. You just gotta scroll a little bit. Here, you know, you gotta capitalize it all. You'll find us easier. Yeah. Hold on, Jake's typing this in. I'm actually curious. I want to see it. Did you... Did you, Are they two separate words? Yeah. And there's no hyphen? Everything is capitalized. Unless, is there a hyphen? No, there's not a hyphen. You fuck. There's not a hyphen on, our po- on the podcast. Why would I put a hyphen on this? Wes, what is this? Did you post this? J- no. <laughs> Stop. Don't look at that. Made such a good dude, I know. I know. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, dude. Oh my god. Damn it. Oh man. Dude, is ga- do you capitalize gaming? You gotta capitalize gaming. You every word is. Why would I capitalize half talentless and then not gaming? I don't think. I don't think YouTube cares about capitalization. I think it does. I think you're a loser. Um, <clears throat>
All right. Wes, it's what? occurring to me, there's like, who is this talentless leader, Epic Seven? Dude, I think that's like a guild on some game. Man, fuck them. They don't Dude, have a podcast. They don't, well, maybe they do. They don't. So, I retract my statement. Apparently, it's fucking impossible to find us right now. We'll Hold work on, on that. I'm looking. J I'm it, looking. Well, we don't have a video. We're just a channel. Can you can you look up? Can you specifically look up channels? Sorry oh, you know that. what I can do? I just Actually, smacked the. Uh, just smacked we can the we can go on. We can use the URL. Half talentless gaming. What? You just why why don't you just do YouTube? dot com backslash half talentless gaming. Because I'm a gaming. fucking idiot. All right, Wes. YouTube.com backslash half talentless gaming. Are we on there? We don't have any. Uh, well, by the time this episode posts in the next like nine hours or something, we will. We still will not have anything posted. But in the this future, page isn't available. Sorry about that. Straight. Fuck. I'll yeah. figure it out. I'll figure it out. Well, we need to link the YouTube channel on our podcast. God damn it. All right. Well, I'll figure that out tomorrow. I'm tired. Anyway, if you are somehow still with us, thank you so much for paying attention and going through this episode. I looked at the analytics, Jake. Ray Rivera Part 1 is still at the top. So, at least we know true crime is somewhat what these people are looking for. Well, yeah, but... So... Although this is about as as we'll check the analytics again, or I will before we go to bed. I just checked it before we started. What you did? Yeah, you didn't tell me. Yeah, I did it in silent because you were talking about the uh, the case. All right. Anyway, um, this is this is as far as we're going with uh, true crime. After the yeah, I don't want to do after this episode. It makes um, me feel gross. You know what? Here's a little teaser for two weeks from now. Episode after uh, Jack the Ripper Part Three, crop circles. Yeah. yeah. Hold on to your boots, because you might get lifted up into a fucking alien ship. Uh, and with that, I guess that's it. So if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know at twitter.com backslash half capital H, talentless capital T. Let us know what you want to hear next. We'd love to hear from you, or just say hi. We might say hi back. Jake, would you say hi back? You know, I can start saying hi back. Sure. Potentially, Jake might say hi back. It's if a rare occurrence. you specifically tweet us the word hi, I'll say hi back. All right, you heard it. You heard it here. Yep. So uh, until then, I'm Wes. I'm Jake. And this has been the Half Talentless Podcast. this i can't we're already in motion if you have last wait what were you gonna say i'm not gonna okay. fucking tell you we're gonna have to restart no nope, <laughs> nope. I'll, I'll fucking ad-lib this if you okay. are if you're still here that means you stay behind the outro we want we want to leave this in as like a test to see who actually does if you still listen to that banger outro god anyway so yeah so if you listen all the way through the outro and you're still listening now do us a favor Go to twitter.com slash half capital H talentless capital T and uh, tweet us something. 
a secret word that only those who stayed behind and listened will know. What should that word be, Wes? It's your outro. What is it? Grandma. Oh my <laughs> god. I know. High five. <laughs> If you do that, Jake will send you feet pics, confirmed. No, Jake I will not. Will I will absolutely 